Hi guys, it is Zara here. You might be wondering what we're doing in your podcast feed on a weekend. Well, you might remember at the beginning of 2022, we did a three-part scandal series exploring how Taylor Swift rose, fell, and then rose again. Those three episodes exploring everything from her start in the industry, her breakup with Calvin Harris, and feud with Kanye West are Shameless Media's most downloaded episodes of all time. As you're very much aware, a lot has happened in the Taylor Swift omniverse since we released that three-part series. So much so that it completely justifies a couple more episodes. So to celebrate Taylor coming to Australia for the Eras Tour this week, we are taking our most popular series ever, two steps further. To kick everything off, we've repackaged our three existing episodes into one bumper podcast episode for you. So take a trip down memory lane with us here and then enjoy part four on Monday and part five the week after. As you all know, if you subscribe to Shay Moore, you will get those parts back to back as well. That is enough from me. Here is part one, part two and part three of our Taylor Swift scandal series. arguably the most powerful person in pop culture. But Taylor Swift's story is littered with highs, lows, industry friends and downright enemies. So let's retrace it all. Welcome to Scandal from Shameless Podcast, the stories of the biggest celebrity controversies revisited. I'm very excited to be here today. Oh my goodness. I cannot wait for this one. I know we're about to talk about it all, Zara, but researching this scandal series with our researcher, Justine Landis-Hanley, was perhaps my favourite scandal story to research. Yeah, it's been one of the great joys of my last few months being able to have our heads in this Mm. because it feels like such a silly thing to call work because I would do it if I wasn't getting paid for it. It is such... (laughs) a good story, the story of Taylor Swift. I know that so many of the people listening to this today will be big Taylor Swift fans. And as two big Taylor Swift fans sitting here, there's still so much that I had forgotten or details that I just completely missed over the years because she has had such a glittery, but also... um, Gritty in some ways. Very gritty career. Yeah, absolutely. We know that all of you have been absolutely demanding this one as well, particularly after the re-release of Red back in November. You guys have been at us and at us to bring this out and it has been a joy to do so far. From the top, we will not be able to cover every little crevice of Taylor Swift's life. It is a very storied, very colourful life. We know that some massive Swifties will be listening and they want to hear it all. It's going to be impossible to jam 30-something years into three episodes. Especially 30 Taylor Swift years. It is absolutely from the top, as Mish said. We we looked at it all, all of the research we had, and we thought we need this to be able to fit in about three episodes. So with (laughs) that came a lot of strategy decisions to be like, what are we including? What are we keeping out? So we have just chosen to tell the stories that we care about. That said, I promise you, my goodness, we cover a lot. Everything (laughs) from Kanye to Heartbreak. To the Taylor Swift is over party, of course, then Scooter Braun. There is so much stuff to come. But for now, Michelle, we are heading all the way back, of course, to 1989. 1989, let's do it. 
All right, Zara. Taylor Ellison Swift was born in 1989 in Pennsylvania. She has a younger brother named Austin. According to Rolling Stone, and I quote, her parents intentionally raised their kids in the country on a Christmas tree farm with a grape arbor and seven horses in eastern Pennsylvania while Taylor's father commuted to work. Yeah, so her mum, Andrea, worked in finance before becoming a stay-at-home mum and her dad, Scott, who is, by the way, a descendant of three generations of bank presidents, was a stockbroker for Merrill Lynch. Now, he actually bought that iconic Christmas tree farm from a client. And as a result of seeing her dad work in finance, when Taylor Swift was about eight, there are many news reports say that she was telling people then that she wanted to become a financial advisor. (laughs) bit different to what she's doing now. By the age of 11, that had changed though. Within those three years, Taylor Swift decided she wanted to become a songwriter. She grew up absolutely obsessed with the likes of Shania Twain and the Dixie Chicks. Music also happened to run in her family. So her grandmother was actually a professional opera singer who performed around the world. How cool is that? So Taylor's mum actually started driving her around on weekends to sing at karaoke competitions. She would watch documentaries of country musicians like Faith Hill all the Dixie Chicks and kept hearing that they had to go to Nashville to get their break. Yeah. So in 2001, she convinced her mother to take her to Nashville. Very impressive. (laughs) She later told Entertainment Tonight, I took my demo CDs of karaoke songs where I sound like a chipmunk. It's pretty awesome. And my mum waited in the car with my little brother while I knocked on doors up and down Music Row. I would say, hi, I'm Taylor. I'm 11. I want a record deal. Call me. They didn't. I love this part of her story. Weird tangent, but it reminds me a lot of Margot Robbie. For listeners who are unaware of Margot's story, she did the same thing. She would cold call television producers and say, my name's Margot Robbie, give me a gig on your TV show. And that's how she kind of got her big break. I think you have to have that tenacity to get through. Well, these are incredibly competitive industries that we're talking about, Mm. particularly the music industry. So it is, I mean, we know that Taylor Swift has drive because look at where she is today and look Mm. at how she puts out work. But it's really interesting to see that it was there from the age of 10 or 11. Yeah. Luckily as well, she had parents who really tried to foster that passion within her. Her mum told Entertainment Tonight that Taylor and I quote, came back from that trip to Nashville and realized she needed to be different. And part of that would be to learn guitar. Now, she had previously tried picking up an acoustic guitar, but hadn't shown much interest in it. After Nashville, she realized that singing alone wasn't going to cut it. She needed to have something else in her kind of arsenal. Yeah. So her mum told Entertainment Tonight this as well. Now at 12, she saw a 12 string guitar and thought it was the coolest thing. And of course, we immediately said, oh no, absolutely not. Your fingers are too small, not till you're much older, will you be able to play a 12-string guitar? Well, that was all it took. Don't say never or can't do to Taylor. She started playing at four hours a day, six on the weekends. Now, I don't know if people know much about guitars, but when I was younger, I tried to learn a bloody six-string guitar and struggle. Yeah. (laughs) My dad was a big big guitar player at home, tried to teach us, and I found it hard. 12-string is ridiculous. Mate, screw guitars. I found the recorder hard. I was asked by my music teacher in year six to not play at our music recital because I was going to make everyone sound worse. (laughs) 
<laughs> that did not happen to Taylor Swift and her 12-string guitar. Around this same time, Taylor Swift began writing her own songs. She later told The New Yorker that she couldn't wait to get home from school and write every day. She admitted to The New Yorker that she was bullied quite badly in middle school. She was also a goody two-shoes that didn't quite fit in. She gave the publication an example of a sleepover where all of her friends were kind of plotting how they were going to sneak over to a guy's house because he had beer. Taylor Swift completely panicked and wanted to call her mum. She said, my whole life, I've never felt comfortable just being edgy like that. Yeah. And this is echoed in every profile we read in the first sort of five, first five years of her career, at least. She very much has consistently pushed this sort of goody two-shoes, and I have that in inverted commas, narrative being like, I've never been able to break rules. I've never been able to sort of step outside the lines of maybe my own perception of what it means Mm. to be good. According to Rolling Stone in high school, Taylor had a 4.0 average, which is, yes, a very American thing to say, but I feel like the movies will tell me that is a good average. (laughs) When she was homeschooled during both her junior and senior years, she finished both years of coursework in 12 months. Yeah, she said that middle school actually really fueled her passion to pursue a career in music as well. She said, a lot of people ask me, how did you have the courage to walk up to record labels when you were 12 or 13 and jump right into the music industry? It's because I knew I could never feel the kind of rejection that I felt in middle school because in the music industry if they're going to say no to you at least they're being polite about it yeah so uh, while her social life perhaps wasn't going from strength to strength when she was at school her career was really starting to she played at a Nashville industry showcase at the age of 13 years old and at that point was offered a development deal by RCA Records which is a label that's owned by Sony now One entertainment lawyer has described this development deal as something that basically you can liken it to a promise ring, Mm. I guess, of the music industry. It's a sort of commitment, but not one taken seriously by anyone outside the relationship. It's like, we see something in you, therefore we're going to see how we go. Yeah. Sorry to bring up the David and Victoria Beckham scandal episode, but kind of like when David was put into that training academy when he was only a teenager as well. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah, You were looking at me like, where is this going? I had no idea. Yeah. It's like a training academy. You're absolutely right. The following year after she got the promise ring from the music industry, Taylor's dad transferred his job to Nashville so they could actually have a base in the home of country music. When that RCA deal came up for renewal, though, after 12 months, Taylor decided to opt out. According to Entertainment Tonight, she was worried that she would have to record songs written by other people. She only wanted to record material that she had had a hand in writing. Yeah, a really interesting tidbit, that one. So Taylor did continue, though, to gain recognition for her work. Her music was actually covered in Vanity Fair at this point and Good Morning America. She's 13. Followed her around town while she rehearsed and performed at the Bluebird Cafe. She's known, I think, that she was going to be famous from the age of 13. You do not have GMA following you around if you're no good. She was also featured in Abercrombie and Fitch's Rising Stars national ad campaign and her song The Outside featured on Maybelline's Chicks with Attitude compilation CD. (laughs) What What? is that? (laughs) Maybelline's compilation CD. Some good promo that they're getting, what, 15, 16 years later. Breaking into country music was always going to be tough, but back in 2004, it had not been done by many teenage girls at 
all. Taylor recalled to The New Yorker years later, I remember auditioning for record labels and having them tell me, well, the country radio demographic is the 35-year-old female housewife. Give us a song that translates to 35-year-old females and we'll talk. But Taylor actually stuck to her instincts and, as we know now, tapped into an audience that country music had largely ignored for a pretty long time and that was teenage girls, the kind of long-time forgotten demographic, it seems, teenage girls. In 2004, at the age of 14, she became the youngest person to sign a publishing deal with Sony. As part of Taylor's publishing deal, right, she was matched with professional songwriters. So her mum would set up these writing sessions and drive her there. And every day after school, she would head off to one of Nashville's studios for writing appointments. Mm. She said, I knew every writer I wrote with was pretty much going to think I'm going to write a song for a 14-year-old today, she told the New York Times. So I would come into each meeting with five or ten ideas that were solid. I wanted them to look at me as a person they were writing with, not a little kid. Yeah, into 2005, she then signed a record deal with Big Machine Records. Now, this is going to become a very important storyline in a couple of episodes' time. A recording deal is where the record label actually owns the song recording, which is called The Master. So, Big Machine Records had just been founded by a music industry executive called Scott Borchetta. Now, he had a reputation of being, and I quote, one of the best radio promotion guys in the business. Taylor Swift, a very young Taylor Swift, was going to be his first ever client at Big Machine. Good one too. I did not realise that this was such a new company when she joined on. Like they were all just at a very embryonic stage of this like music rocket ship. Yeah, and I think naturally we are going to talk a lot about this in the next few episodes. But one thing that became very clear to us knowing now that she was their first ever client is, okay, wow, like Taylor Swift really built that company. Yeah, yeah. But as I said, we will get to all of that in a second. (laughs) Now, let's talk about Taylor Swift's debut album. In 2006, at the age of 16, she released her debut album, Taylor Swift. Now, Taylor and Scott were really strategic in the launch. Borchetta told the New York Times in 2008, we felt it wasn't likely that country radio would embrace it unless we had a story. So basically what they did was they made a bunch of biographical short clips to air on the great American country cable network. Taylor's first single was a song called Tim McGraw and it was all about how she and a guy fell in love and they both liked the same song by one of the world's most famous country singers. Scott Borchetta said this was very strategic as well. We put that out deliberately so people would ask, who's this new artist with a song called Tim McGraw? He likened the response to that decision as, and I quote, a grenade in a still pond. It makes perfect sense, doesn't it? Like Mm. it's an incredibly intriguing title for a song. Well, if someone called a song Taylor Swift today, I'd be be super. It feels very meta, doesn't it? From that moment Tim McGraw came out, Taylor began to amass a huge audience of teen girls exactly as she was trying to. The album sold a, quote, modest... (laughs) 39,000 copies in its first week. But as Taylor gained attention and released more singles like Teardrops on My Guitar, the album just kept selling. And by 2007, she won the Country Music Association's Horizon Award for Best New Artist. Teardrops on My Guitar was how I found Taylor Swift. I had that CD. I remember my cousin showed it to me on like old school CD players in her bedroom. And we all fell in love with Taylor Swift in that moment. I wish I remembered. I wish I remembered when I started to listen to her, but I Mm. feel like she's just like 
always been around. <laughs> always been in your life, helping you through heartbreak. Yeah, genuinely. <laughs> so before we move on, we need to take a moment to acknowledge the role that Taylor's upbringing played in her success. There have been plenty of whispers about this over the years, about how privileged Taylor Swift is, about maybe the legs up that she got in life. So let's talk about them. First of all, there's no doubt that Taylor Swift is immeasurably talented and a huge ingredient in her success has been the fact that she's just destined for stardom. Yeah, well, she can write and she can sing and she's smart when it comes to marketing. So those three things have been crucial. Mm, But the New Yorker has put it really well in the past. In 2011, when they wrote about Taylor's story, they remarked, it is often framed as an underdog saga, the triumph of a nice girl over mean ones and of teenage pluckiness over industry gatekeepers. It's a legend that de-emphasised the role of adults. Yeah, so Taylor has also kind of tried to paint herself over the years as someone who came from relatively humble beginnings. Even this year on her re-released version of Red, she included a new song called I Bet You Think About Me, which I know that everybody is obsessed with already. (laughs) I just went to sing it. I'm like, don't do that. Yeah, do not do that. In the song, she sings about an ex and wrote in that song, you grew up in a silver spoon gated community, glamorous, shiny, bright Beverly Hills. I was raised on a farm. No, it wasn't a mansion, just a living room dancing and kitchen table bills. But like we said, we know that Taylor Swift's parents weren't farmers. They worked in finance. We know that her family were financially secure enough to uproot to Nashville so that they could pursue her dreams. And we also know that Taylor's dad actually invested in Big Machine Records, the label that signed Taylor. He bought a 3% share in that label, which it's estimated that he purchased it for around 120 k Yeah, it doesn't line up with kitchen table bills. She also came from the long, long line of bank presidents. Yeah. Like, I don't know why there's this real desire to pretend that she doesn't come from generational wealth when she does. Uh, Maybe it's to appear more relatable to her fans, but I think that is really interesting to have on the record that she does come from that kind of money. Scott Borchetta has made it clear that money and affluence is not what made Taylor a star, particularly when it comes to her dad owning part of Big Machine Records. He told Rolling Stone that Scott Swift owns 3% of Big Machine, but I hear people go, oh well, he funded the whole deal and that's why Taylor's number one. It's like, please people. Everyone wants to say, well, there's a reason. Yeah, there is a reason because she's great. That's the reason. We also need to acknowledge that sort of widely held rumour that Taylor's parents purchased thousands of copies of her debut album to help it climb the charts. We actually, in our research, haven't been able to find anything to prove that claim. From what we can gather, though, we will say it doesn't feel or sound unusual for artists or labels to buy lots of their own albums for this purpose. Mm. For example, in 2020, Selena Gomez was criticised for saying that she was buying her own album. In one video she posted on Instagram, she said that she was going with her friends to buy, and I quote, as many albums as possible. In other videos, she asked fans to buy and stream her album saying, it's not about numbers for me, but I would love the most important album I've ever released to become number one. Yeah. And this is all to say that this is happening years later. It's kind of a very tried and tested formula for success in the industry. Justin Bieber, someone who rose to fame at a similar time to Taylor Swift, has admitted to 
the same thing. In 2020, he was still asking fans to help him boost his figures for the single Yummy. He shared a series of slides that included how to get Yummy to number one. <laughs> this was so embarrassing. It I remember this. It was really this. embarrassing. He instructed people to, and I quote, create a Spotify playlist with Yummy on repeat and stream it. Don't mute it. Play it on a low volume. Let it play while you sleep. He then suggested that anyone listening from outside the US should pay for a VPN account and set that account so to kind of like artificially change the location of their device, change it to the US to help his American streaming figures. So <laughs> I forgot about that story. It is so good. Which is all just to say we have no idea if Taylor's parents bought some of her albums. As we said, we couldn't find anything to prove it. It is also not to say that if that did happen, we would excuse it. It's just that... It seems to be quite standard practice in the music industry, whether you find that right or wrong. It's kind of the world we live in. So, I, yeah. like, yes, it's important to talk about it. And, yes, if it happened, that is something interesting that I raise my eyebrow at. But it doesn't discredit anything either. Yeah, well, she'd hardly be the first person to have ever done it. Now, we are going to get into Fearless and Joe Jonas and kind of the first time that we learn that Taylor starts writing songs about the people who break her heart. But first, a word from today's sponsor. All right, Zara, it is time to talk about Mr. Joe Jonas. So at the age of 18, Taylor Swift started dating the most high-profile Jonas brother, I would say. <laughs> this was her first official relationship, it seemed, or appeared to the public eye, with another teen celebrity. So she appeared at a Jonas Brothers concert in July 2008. People magazine wrote in September that year that they were dating. Yeah, so the relationship didn't last long as we know. According to tabloids, Taylor and Joe dated for about three months. People magazine reported that they broke up in October and by November he had moved on with the actress Camilla Bell who did star in the Jonas Brothers music video Love Bug. Mm, Taylor famously revealed to Alan in November that Joe had broken up with her via voicemail. She dropped into the interview this line. It's like when I find that person that that is is right for me and is he'll be wonderful. And when I look at that person, I'm not even going to be able to remember the boy who broke up with me over the phone in 25 seconds when I was 18. I didn't realize she gave quotes so publicly about that breakup so soon after that breakup. She also did them in quite a good way, I think. I yeah. think well, re-watching this interview, it kind of sparks that teenage annoyance in me that someone dared to break her heart. I remember seeing this at the time and being enraged that Joe Jonas broke up with Taylor Swift on a 25-second phone call. And truthfully, it marked the beginning of a process where Taylor would make lemonade out of lemons yeah. and coincide talking about her heartbreak with the release of her albums. So the same day she went on Ellen, which was November 11, 2008, Taylor released her second studio album, Fearless. This was the album that brought us hits like Love Story, White Horse and You Belong With Me. Also, reportedly, she wrote Forever and Always about Joe, which was quick. When I was sitting there thinking about this, because all the reports at the time and all the reports now are that Forever and Always was written about Joe Jonas. This album came out in mid-November. Mm. She broke up with Joe Jonas in October. She would have to have written, recorded, edited, <laughs> snuck it onto the album within a month. I'm not saying it's impossible. I'm saying she was either so heartbroken that she was desperate to get this track on there mm. or it's been a really 
easy thing for them to sell. Yeah. What do you think? Well, Stevie Nicks wrote Dreams in 10 minutes. Maybe Taylor Swift wrote Forever and Always in a similar time frame. It is fast, but I don't think it's impossible. It's, I agree with that. Yeah. So this album was celebrated by some critics. For example, the Boston Globe praised Taylor's ability to dissect youth with such honesty. They wrote that the quality separates her from the pack of teenage starlets who rely on big name producers, songwriters, and Disney shows for a music career. The reviewer also added that Taylor knows how to write a hit and noted songs like 15 and The Best Day as the standout songs. The praise wasn't universal though I'm sure as you can imagine when any 18 year old woman releases an album of which she had largely written Guardian critic Alexis Petridis couldn't understand why American reviewers were so wrapped up with the album giving it only three stars he criticized Taylor's tendency to use the same images over and over again adding that she spends so much time kissing in the rain (laughs) that it seems a miracle she hasn't developed trench foot He did praise her ability to write about teenage life but said that the record does something bland and uninventive but does it incredibly well. He was also nearly 40 years old and is a white guy so perhaps he was not the intended audience for this album. Yeah, well, like him discarding of Taylor Swift's problems as bland and kind of boring screams to just a generational divide. I don't expect 40-year-old men to find the problems of teenage girls interesting because I, as a teenage girl, couldn't give a single fuck about the problems of 40-year-old men. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Regardless of what the press thought, though, the fans loved it, which was the most important thing. The album spent 11 non-consecutive weeks at the top of the US Billboard 200 chart. It sold 12 million copies worldwide and to this day it was one of the best-selling albums of the 21st century. So... There you go, Alexis Petridis. (laughs) Taylor was very, very smart, very strategic when it came to getting this album in people's ears. She did things that other country musicians weren't doing to try and connect with her fans. For example, she was using social media to build an online following to connect with her existing supporters and find new ones. Now, we need to remember this is at a time when social media platforms are fresh. Facebook was created in 2004. YouTube was created in 2005. And yet she jumped on those juggernauts very, very quickly. Yeah, this is the MySpace era. In fact, in a profile written by the New York Times that year in 2008, a journalist observed how great Taylor was at harnessing social media. The piece was titled, My Music, My Space, My Life. The piece reads... She has aggressively used online social networks to stay connected with her young audience in a way that, while typical for rock and hip-hop artists, is proving to be revolutionary in country music. As she vigilantly narrates her own story and erases barriers between her and her fans, she is helping country music reach a new audience. Mm, In that same piece, country singer Kelly Pickler remarked, Taylor's a very competitive person and she's always got her game face on. And she's a really smart businesswoman, smarter than a lot of 40 year olds that I know. I love that quote. She also had built a reputation as someone who cared more about her fans than the average musician. After shows, she would seek her fans out, not just the ones that paid for VIP tickets, but she wanted to make sure as many fans as she could knew that she appreciated their presence. And that is something that she's carried through her career, Mm. not just making sure her fans feel appreciated, but they are the forefront of everything that she does. And it's almost like there is no barrier between her and her fans. She's Mm. almost consumed by it. I can't think of another 
celebrity who has a stronger connection with her audience. Like she has an unwavering connection to her fans. This worked exceptionally well. Taylor's upbeat songs, marketing strategies, and that dedication to fostering a deep connection with her followers saw her music not just get played on country radio, but also pop stations and MTV. She actually hosted MTV's VMA's pre-show in 2008. Now, this was a country star who was going mainstream. She was the best-selling artist of 2008. Yeah, and that's not to say that other country musicians haven't been hugely successful. I mean, we know the Chicks, formerly known as the Dixie Chicks. We know Carrie Underwood, for example. Both of those acts have been supremely successful. But as the New York Times put it really well, Taylor proved there's no reason a country singer can't be a pop star too. Mm, In March 2009, so after she'd had all this success in 2008, a 19-year-old Taylor Swift sat down to be interviewed by Rolling Stone. The magazine called her Little Miss Perfect and said that at 19, she had never had a drop of alcohol. She explained, I have no interest in drinking. I always want to be responsible for the things I say and do. And I would have a problem lying to my parents about that. Yeah, so journalist Vanessa Gregoriadis observes, Swift seems to have three gears, giggly and dorky, worrying about boys and pouring that emotion into song and insanely driven, hyper self-controlled perfectionism. Mm. I think it's very interesting that even when we go back and read profiles of Taylor, of this time, one consistent thread is of this real competitiveness, as you noted before, and also this huge drive to be perfect to be in perfect. every part of her life. She went on to write, she is constantly worried about saying something that could be construed as offensive to her fans and even swats away a question about her political preferences before conceding that she supports the president. Incredible sense of foreboding about this quote, isn't there? That in 2009, when I would argue the world was nowhere near as divisive as it was about to become maybe six, seven years later, Mm. that she still didn't even feel like she could put her hand up and say, yeah, I support Barack Obama. Yeah. Now, we've got to say, we know we keep quoting this Rolling Stone piece, but it is so interesting to go back and read it because Taylor Swift's maturity was also called into question by Vanessa Gregoriadis. She wrote, in a way, Swift's emotional state seems to be stuck at the time when she left school. Later on in the piece, Gregoriadis wrote, Oh my God, Taylor giggles. For love story, the stage is going to become a church and I'm going to get into a white dress. She bites her lip. There's so many cool sets, she says later. We're going to have a giant castle. Yeah, she's 19 at this point. So Mm. these quotes do come across, I think, as someone who sounds maybe three to four years younger than that. Do you think that's fair? Yeah, I do. I think it's really interesting because we know that Taylor was kind of taken out of school and was living a very adult life very, very early. And in some ways you could think, well, maybe you grow up too fast. Maybe a 19-year-old starts to speak like a 25-year-old. But Taylor's parents were always with her. She was so, so close to her parents. She is still to this day. But during this time, It was almost like she lived a more childlike existence because she was constantly around her own guardians. Yeah, it was quite a cocoon, Mm. I think. I also think that there was probably a deliberate decision to make sure that these are the quotes are the ones that make it onto the public record because these are the kinds of girls, young girls, teenagers, that she's trying to appeal to. Yeah, well, she's probably also being a savvy businesswoman. Like, yes, both things can be true. Maybe she is slightly more innocent, more goody two-shoes than the average 19-year-old. We've also had from her own peers say that she is a super savvy, super switched on woman. 
maybe she just knew I don't care if the Rolling Stone profile piece makes me seem like I'm younger than I am. That's ideal. I want to be appealing to 12 to 15 year olds primarily anyway. Exactly. So it does go without saying that things were going really great for Taylor in 2009. When the VMAs rolled around in November, she was even nominated for Best Video by a Female Artist for the You Belong With Me music video. Now, also nominated for that same award was, of course, Beyonce for Single Ladies. Mm, This was a huge night for 19-year-old Taylor Swift for many reasons. Not only was she nominated for the huge award against some of the most glittery pop music icons, she'd also been asked to perform You Belong With Me live at the VMAs. So she had turned up this... (laughs) As a Taylor Swift fan, this makes me roll my eyes just a little bit. She turned up to the red carpet in a glass pumpkin-shaped Cinderella coach (laughs) wearing a silver gown, which Vox explained was a deliberate reference to the fact that, and I quote, Taylor was Cinderella and the VMAs were the ball at which she would make her entry to the world of pop music. Look, off the back of that Rolling Stone piece, we can't say that her publicity team was not consistent with the image that they wanted to put out into the world. Someone else who arrived at the VMAs as well was Kanye West. He, in comparison to Taylor Swift, arrived on the red carpet clutching a bottle of Hennessy that he was (laughs) passing around to other people. Vox did speculate that he was drunk on the red carpet. We don't know if he was drunk or not. All we can say for sure is that he was drinking Mm. and that bottle of Hennessy, the amount within the bottle was kind of decreasing. (laughs) As he was walking the red carpet. You should be a politician, I swear to God. Taylor ended up winning that big award. She got up on stage and said, thank you so much. I've always dreamed about what it would be like to win one of these someday, but I never thought it actually would have happened. I sing country music. So thank you so much for giving me the chance to win a VMA award. I, at that point where she goes to start a new sentence, she's interrupted. No, Taylor... I'm really happy for you. I'm going to let you finish. But Beyonce had one of the best videos of all time. One of the best videos of all time. So as I'm sure many people can remember, the camera while Kanye is on stage cuts to Beyonce staring at him with her mouth agape in what looks like horror. Mm. Here is a passage from Vox explaining what happened next. The crowd began to boo. Kanye shrugged and handed the microphone back to Taylor as he walked off stage. And Taylor took it and stood silently, lips pursed and body tense as the audience erupted into chaos, some booing Kanye and some standing on their seats to give Taylor a standing ovation. Then MTV cut to a pre-recorded segment between Eminem and Tracy Morgan. Do you remember recently when Taylor Swift just reflected on this incident and she's spoken a lot about not realising when she was on that stage that the people booing weren't booing her for so long or at least in the immediate aftermath of that Mm. incident? She was so shook, literally shook on that stage because she thought people were booing her. Yeah, which you can understand how that would happen. There's so much chaos going on. You're in such shock. You can hear this kind of pandemonium in the audience below. And all you know is that it's a negative response, whether people are booing the fact that you won the award instead of Beyonce and booing the decision to give that to you or booing Kanye West for making the decision to interrupt you. It would be an incredibly confusing time. It's also important to know she didn't get to give her speech. Like she began by saying one sentence, she was cut off, this 
chaos erupts and then all of a sudden they're cutting to a pre-recorded segment and she's kind of awkwardly ushered off the stage. According to Vox, one of the producers quietly told Beyonce that she was wink wink about to be up on the stage again soon so Beyonce was nominated for and ended up winning best overall music video of the year so a bigger reward than what Taylor won when Beyonce got that accolade instead of giving an acceptance speech herself she graciously invited Taylor Swift on stage to have and I quote her moment. Yeah, I mean, Beyonce will always be the queen in so many a ways. A hero. <laughs> a total hero. Like, she seems like an incredibly gracious human. Later that night, Kanye posted a pretty bad apology to Taylor and her fans on his blog. <laughs> his blog. He, this is, I actually laughed quite a lot when I reread this. <laughs> on the one hand, he was saying he was so sorry to Taylor Swift and her fans and her mom. <laughs> but defended himself saying Beyonce's video was the best of this decade. He then promised to apologise to Taylor tomorrow. (laughs) I just want to hone in for a second, if I may, on that initial apology to Taylor Swift, her fans and her mum and in that order. It is so horrendously patronising to assume that Taylor Swift can't stand on her own two feet without her mother there. (laughs) People were going understandably nuts for this pop culture moment. Twitter absolutely blew up with angry posts directed towards Kanye. A video leaked of the then President Barack Obama saying that the young lady Taylor seemed like a perfectly nice person whilst Kanye looked like, and I quote, a jackass. (laughs) Nice American accent there too. According to the New Yorker, Kanye apologised to Taylor privately and actually ended up taking a year off to recover from the incident. I didn't realise that. No. When I read that in The New Yorker, I was like, yeah, I guess he really did kind of go to ground, but I didn't realise that he had to take a whole year off really anything for his brand to recover. It also drew a lot of attention to Taylor Swift. Now, Taylor Swift was clearly a big artist in her own right because she was winning a VMA at this point. But the moment itself garnered such international attention when you've got Barack Obama talking about you it reached and divided people that may not have previously known who she was. Yeah. In a professional sense, we know that this probably boosted Taylor Swift's career. But in a personal sense, I don't think any of us can sit here and act like this wouldn't have a real impact on you in front of millions of people. Like, absolutely, there was a personal toll that Taylor Swift paid for this incident. And I think a lot of people were very understanding about her talking about that and giving quotes about that in interviews for a year. I think where the sentiment was split or started to turn was the next year. So what happened to the year after? Well, Taylor Swift wrote a new song called Innocent and decided to play it at the next year's VMAs. The song was addressed to Kanye with lines like, 32 and still growing up now, who you are is not what you did, you're still an innocent. While some people praised the song, others did not like it at all. Yolanda Sanguini wrote for Essence that the song was patronising. She also criticised Taylor for playing into the victim-villain dynamic to her own advantage, writing, Hadn't she said she was over the whole debacle? If only West and Swift wouldn't have played so perfectly into their roles, the innocent white girl and the supposedly menacing black man. Like it or not, pop culture is a reflection of our reality and cannot be dismissed as having no meaning or value. I think we would all agree that that's an absolutely important layer here. I think we have two key layers when it comes to an older man feeling like he can interrupt a teenage woman in front of millions of people. There's a layer of sexism probably there. 
And then when we have Taylor Swift writing this song, Innocent, there's a layer of race. We have a white woman depicting a black man as a villain. Yeah, exactly. And I think with those things in mind, it becomes a far more complicated story, a far more layered story than meets the eye. I think it was also positioning herself as the one who could kind of like redeem Kanye West was a bit too far. Like speak about your own experience, speak about how you feel, but to say who you are is not what you did, you're still an innocent is a little bit cringe. There was more negative press about this song from NPR. Under an article titled Taylor Swift Sings That Kanye Can Get to Heaven Despite Interrupting Her, journalist Linda Holmes wrote, On last night's VMAs, the saga continued as Taylor Swift, previously perched on at least something of a high ground, leaped enthusiastically from that high ground into a morris of overclocked and passive-aggressive self-pity. Overall, she's very earnest about letting Kanye's soul live. Another fun fact here, very quickly, a 2012 profile in Rolling Stone revealed that Taylor Swift actually had a framed photograph of the incident above the fireplace in her Nashville home with the caption, life is full of little interruptions. The VMA award itself sat next to it. She told Rolling Stone that Kanye interrupted her, helped her realise nothing is going to go exactly the way you plan it. Just because you make a good plan doesn't mean that's what's going to happen. VMAs aside, the Fearless era, which was from 2008 to 2010, was incredibly successful for Taylor Swift. She went on to win Album of the Year at the CMAs, so the Country Music Association Awards, and the Academy of Country Music Awards. She won Artist of the Year at the AMAs. She won Album of the Year at the 2010 Grammys for Fearless. She was the youngest ever person to receive a Grammy for Album of the Year until Billie Eilish went on to win it aged 18. It is so stupidly impressive, isn't Mm. it, to win a Grammy for an album that young? It's just so much fame so early as well. Yeah, so much success so, so So young. So much. Now, on October 25, 2010, Taylor Swift, aged 20, 20, released her third studio album, three albums by the time she's 20, called Speak Now. She wrote the entire album by herself while on the Fearless tour. Each song was designed to be kind of like a confession of sorts that she never had the chance to say to the person they were about. It became her most successful album to date. Imagine coming off all that success and being like, and I'm going to beat it. Yeah, it's the Grammy for album of the year and wait, I'm going to write a better one. It debuted at number one on the Billboard 200 chart and sold a million copies in its first week. (laughs) Oh my God. Forbes ranked Taylor as 2010's seventh biggest earning celebrity with an annual income of $45 million. This is a 20-year-old, just a reminder, a 20-year-old that we're speaking about. In Speak Now, Taylor showed that she was also not afraid to delve into her personal life, specifically when it came to the guys she was dating. Between 2008 and 2010, Taylor famously dated guys like Lucas Till, that was her co-star from the You Belong With Me music video. She also dated Twilight actor Taylor Lautner and John Mayer. She had just started dating actor Jake Gyllenhaal in October 2010 when Speak Now came out. Rest in peace, Jake Gyllenhaal. (laughs) A lot of the songs on Speak Now could be traced back to the boyfriends that Taylor dated in the lead up to the album. Some of them apparently weren't too happy about being name dropped or at least sort of hinted to. (laughs) I understand that, but also... Screw it. Like, don't date a musician then. (laughs) For example, Dear John... (laughs) was pretty clearly about John Mayer. Taylor kind of dragged John in this song. Kind of. Yeah, well, he he dragged John. She dragged John for how he treated her and nodded to the fact that he was almost 13 years older than her when they dated. This was one of the lines. 
Dear John, I see it all now that you're gone. Don't you think I was too young to be messed with? The girl in the dress cried the whole way home. I should have known. It's very hard to read lyrics out without singing them. (laughs) John Mayer later told Rolling Stone that he was, and I quote, really humiliated by the song. Grow up, John. Fuck off, John Mayer. He said, it made me feel terrible because I didn't deserve it. I'm pretty (laughs) good at taking accountability now, and I never did anything to deserve that. It was a really lousy thing for her to do, as if he has never written a song about someone he dated or broke up with. Also, a 13-year age gap. I'm a bit off him even dating a teenager in the first place. Well, he was in his 30s. I was going to say, what, what do you mean you've not done anything wrong? She's writing about an age gap, a power dynamic mm. that is clearly there. Like, you can't argue with that. <laughs> Ask by the New Yorker how she felt about ex-boyfriends getting upset that she was writing about their relationships in songs. She said, in every one of my relationships, I've been good and fair. What happens after they take that for granted is not my problem. Chances are if they're being written about in a way they don't like, it's because they hurt me really badly. Telling a story only works if you have characters in it. I don't think it's mean. I think it's mean to hurt someone in a relationship. I love how like steadfast and strong she was in that moment. In other songs, Taylor took responsibility for the way that she messed up and she hurt people in relationships, particularly in the song Back to December, where she sang about how much she regretted breaking up with her boyfriend, Taylor Lautner. We expect it's Taylor Lautner. I think we're all pretty sure when the timelines and the lyrics match up. Another song, The Story of Us, was believed to be about an awkward run-in she had with Taylor Lautner at an award show. Yeah, even Joe Jonas got a mention on Speak Now. Most people believed that Better Than Revenge was about Camilla Bell, the actress Joe started dating shortly after leaving Taylor in 2008. Now, lyrics included, she's not a saint. No, she's not what you think. She's an actress. Whoa. She's an actress. Whoa. Uh, she's... <laughs> she's... She's an actress. Whoa. She's. <laughs> it's how, how do you say? Just, just go past the whoa. Oh, sorry. Okay. She's an actress. She's better known for the things that she does on the mattress. Now, Ooh. at the point of release, fans did love this song, but we will talk a little bit later about how that adoration came crashing down mm. when maybe her fans got old enough to really think critically about the lyrics in that song. Yeah, and slut-shaming wasn't so easily permissible anymore. As The New Yorker wrote in 2011, Taylor's decision and ability to write about her personal life was not just an artistic choice, it was also a really clever marketing choice. As they observed in that piece, the subject of the songs, it becomes clear, is not really men. It's more about the love affair between Swift and her audience. At a concert in Detroit, Taylor said, You know when you know someone really well and they can finish your sentences? I'm curious to know what it would be like to have 50,000 people finish my sentences. This time, the Speak Now era, was also when Taylor began dropping Easter eggs for her community to find. Now, this is part of Taylor's appeal and allure and her brand that is so well known in 2021. It's interesting that this began a decade prior in the notes of her albums, in her song lists, Taylor would leave numbers and codes for her fans to pour over. She also began writing the number 13 on her hand in Sharpie at every concert. From there on, the number 13 started popping up in so many various ways in so many places that the most loyal Taylor Swift fans, the most adoring people in her community, were almost 
in on an inside joke. It was like a wink to each other that, yes, there are Taylor Swift fans, but we're the real fans because we know exactly what she's talking about and she has a secret way to communicate with us. It's really clever. It's like a really clever and easy way to make people feel special. Mm. As The New Yorker put it, Swift's ability to hold her audience's interest reflects in part a keen understanding of what fuels fan obsession in the first place, a desire for intimacy between singer and listener. What was also really interesting from interviews that Taylor was doing around this time was just how terrified she appeared of losing everything, the fame, the fans and her reputation. In 2011, she told The New Yorker that she did worry incessantly about peaking too early in her career. She said, I've been watching behind the music since I was five and I became fascinated by career trajectories. Like this artist peaked on their second album. This artist peaked on their third album. This artist peaked with every album. These are singles artists. These are album artists. And sometimes I stress myself out wondering what my trajectory is. Like if I sleep in and wake up at 2 p.m. because I'm so tired from the night before, sometimes I'll beat myself up because what if I was supposed to wake up earlier that day and write a song. Be pretty exhausting to live with that kind of pressure on yourself. In 2012, Rolling Stone wrote that Taylor was also coming to grips with, and I quote, the fact that her days of exclusively good press are over. Taylor told the magazine, I just got to take it day by day. I don't think anyone is ever truly viewed as only one thing, as only good, as only well behaved, as only respectful. In the beginning, when there would be a tiny news story about something that wasn't true, I thought that meant my fans weren't going to show up to my next concert. But now, knock on wood, where's wood? I need to knock on wood. I feel like my fans have my back and I have theirs. Taylor also went on to say that she can't be the good guy in every story and she knows that. She said, it's just part of the dynamics of a good story. Everybody is a complicated character. She also said in that interview, I am always terrified that something's going to happen and I'm not going to be able to do this anymore and it's all going to end in one day. Part of the fear comes from loving this so much and not wanting to lose it. She was really worried one day that everything would dry up or everything would fall apart or more importantly that she would lose her reputation. On the 22nd of October 2012, Taylor Swift released her fourth studio album. It was of course called Red. Some critics have argued that it is Taylor's best album and by some critics I think I mean you and I. <laughs> okay, I want to clarify. Red is one of my favourites. I know it's your absolute favourite. Like it's almost a perfect album in your estimation. Almost perfect. Yeah, between that and 1989. Yeah, no. 1989 would be my favourite. Folklore is in the mix yeah, as well. True. It's in my top three. I think it probably gets my bronze medal. I think there is something particularly nostalgic for people about Red because I think it was one of – I think Breakout Album is totally the wrong phrase, but the album that really cemented her fans is almost fanatical about her. Yes, it really strengthened and intensified the existing love that was already there in so many young women and young men. Red was a hit. It spent seven weeks at the top of the US Bill Board 200 chart, four of its songs. So we are never getting back together. Begin again. I knew you were trouble. And red all peaked within the top 10 songs on the Billboard's Hot 100 chart. Yeah, Rolling Stone ranked it number 99 on its 500 best albums of all time. The magazine wrote that Taylor shocked audiences by, and I quote, breaking away from country music to make a record that recalled classics by the Beatles and Prince in a way that it pulled across the pop and rock landscape and transformed every sound it touched. Mm. Now, this album was also iconic because it 
really saw Taylor lean into something that she had dabbled in previously in her career. She had written songs about her life, yes, but in Red, I think we saw it to a higher degree. She was writing a lot about her personal life and she was really drawing on references to the famous men who she was dating, which naturally is going to kick up some publicity. By the time that Red had come out, Taylor had been linked to a few famous faces. She had dated Joe Jonas, John Mayer, Connor Kennedy and Jake Gyllenhaal. Yeah, a really quick aside that we wanted to include here that is really not central to the premise of this entire episode, but an anecdote I had simply forgotten is one about the relationship between Connor Kennedy and Taylor Swift. Now, I didn't forget that they dated, but I had totally forgotten that when Connor Kennedy and Taylor Swift were dating, there was a little bit of bad publicity around them surrounding a wedding, a family wedding that they attended that everyone said Taylor Swift wasn't welcome at. Yeah, I'm a major Swifty. We all know that diehard Taylor Swift fan. And I had no idea about this story. If I came across it all those years ago, I think I would have discounted it as kind of tabloid fodder, rumours, gossip, all that type of stuff. But this is a story that we cannot skip over in this Taylor Swift series because there is some meat behind it. So if you missed this when it happened, all those years ago, Taylor and Connor turned up to a Kennedy family wedding uninvited. And when we say Kennedy family, we of course mean the Kennedy dynasty. We mean the Kennedys. They weren't invited to a family wedding and they didn't leave straight away. The step-grandmother of the bride went on the Today Show and alleged that Connor hadn't RSVP'd to the family wedding and asked the mother of the bride last minute if he could bring along his new girlfriend, Taylor Swift. The family said no, but Connor brought Taylor anyway. This reeks of he didn't tell Taylor Swift that she wasn't welcome and brought her anyway. Anyway, so Victoria Kennedy, the mother of the bride, also spoke to the media about this. She told the Boston Herald that, and this is a quote, I personally went up to Miss Swift, whose entrance distracted the entire event, politely introduced myself to her and asked her as nicely as I could to leave. It was like talking to a ghost. She seemed to look right past me. Now, apparently they were asked to leave twice. Rolling Stone actually put it in a, the story in a 2012 profile of her and Taylor Swift said she had no idea what happened there and put the whole thing down to a big misunderstanding. What an awkward story. What an awkward story to have the family of an ex come out and say, you were at a wedding and we didn't want you there and you didn't leave. Yeah, and when we asked you to leave, you pretended we weren't speaking to you. I don't even know what to make of this. It's literally just that confusing. Yeah, and I think it's all just to say these were some early signs that the press wasn't always just working in Taylor Swift's favour and were really kind of dogged in trying to point out cracks in that nice girl persona. Yeah. By December 2012, shortly after Red was released, Taylor was photographed for the very first time with an 18-year-old by the name of Harry Styles. Now, this relationship didn't last very long. The two reportedly broke up within a couple of months, bringing us to about January 2013. According to Us Weekly, Harry and Taylor had been vacationing in the British Virgin Islands and got into an argument that ended their relationship. Following these high-profile relationships, we did start to see around this time in 2013 magazines with front covers like Why Can't Taylor Find Love and Two-Timing Taylor. There was also that very infamous now and particularly awkward interview that Taylor Swift did on Ellen in 2013, during which Ellen showed a slideshow of photos of Taylor with different guys asking her to ring a bell if she dated them. Now, in this really awkward interview, Taylor said, this makes me feel so bad about myself. 
Every time I come up here, you put a different dude up there on the screen and it makes me question what I stand for as a human being. Mm. Now, we went back and watched this, obviously, before we did this episode, and it is an awkward interview. There is no doubt about it. It's not the kind of thing you watch with hindsight and think is awkward. You watch it and you're like, oh. It makes you kind of squirm in your seat because you're watching a young woman kind of be slut-shamed on international television. And By another woman. Yeah, and I, I get it. Parts of making a celebrity uncomfortable does provide good entertainment. But I think when you put this interview in the greater context of the general slut-shaming of Taylor Swift around this time, it paints it in a slightly different light. Now, that wasn't the only time that Taylor Swift was slut-shamed at all. At the 2013 Golden Globe Awards, co-hosts Amy Poehler and Tina Fey took the opportunity of hosting to make fun of Taylor's dating life. One of Tina Fey's jokes went like this. You know what, Taylor Swift? You stay away from Michael J. Fox's son. Or go for it. No, you. she needs some me time to learn about herself. Now, in an interview with Vanity Fair, Taylor actually spoke about the perception that she was, quote unquote, boy crazy. She said, for a female to write about her feelings and then be portrayed as some clingy, insane, desperate girlfriend in need of making you marry her and have kids with her, I think that's taking something that potentially should be celebrated, a woman writing about her feelings in a confessional way that's taking it and turning it and twisting it into something that is frankly a little sexist. Mm. She wasn't wrong, but this was definitely at the time where things about Taylor Swift not holding down a relationship and dating a string of famous men were at fever pitch. Yeah. Thankfully, though, this did not deter her from writing about her experiences with the men that she dated. Naturally as well, this publicity about Taylor's dating life and which celebrity she was connected with naturally led fans to really speculate who was each song about. Like they knew that she wrote about her own life. They knew that she kind of sifted through personal experiences to create art. So when a new single would come out about a boy or a man, everyone would ask the question of which famous man is this about? Now, Zara, one of the interesting things that we unearthed in our research for this series is the Taylor Swift and Harry Styles timeline is a little questionable. It's a really interesting story, isn't it? Because to be honest, what I do kind of respect about Taylor Swift is she knows that there's going to be that speculation and she kind of rides the wave of it. So what we know about Harry Styles and Taylor Swift and the songs that might be about him is that Red came out in October 2012. Taylor was first spotted wearing a paper aeroplane necklace similar to one that Harry wore at the time in November. She was first photographed with him in December and they broke up in January, which is all to say that by the looks of things, she started dating Harry after Red came out. But in February 2013, a month after their breakup, when Taylor performed We Are Never Ever Getting Back Together at the Grammys and she said the line, he calls me up and is like, I still love you. (laughs) She did it in a British accent. Yeah, in a British accent. And then in the same month, she performed I Knew You Were Trouble at the Brit Awards. When the Sunday Times asked Taylor if she knew that Harry Styles was watching at the show, she said, well, it's not hard to access that emotion when the person the song is directed at is standing by the side of the stage watching. Then in August 2013, when Taylor accepted the VMA Award that year for the I Knew You Were Trouble music video, she told the crowd, I want to thank the person who inspired this song. He knows exactly who he is because now I've got one of these. The camera then panned to Harry. 
But given the timeline, given the fact that we know these songs were written before the Taylor and Harry relationship, the album was released before they were even connected to each other publicly, we know these songs aren't about them. I know some people might be listening, oh, well, maybe Taylor and Harry dated in secret and we didn't know about it. That's almost impossible. Taylor was dating other people that year. There wasn't months where we weren't sure and she was single. There was only really a two-month gap where Taylor and Harry could have been connected And the songs would have all been written by then. Yeah, but she really didn't hesitate in sort of giving us a sly wink and saying, maybe though. (laughs) And it really did hype up publicity around this album. But what it also did, Mish, is it kind of sparked rumours that maybe the Harry Styles and Taylor Swift relationship was one for PR. And keep in mind here, it wasn't just Taylor that you could look back on and say, oh, she leveraged that relationship for publicity. Mm. Harry Styles did it too, (laughs) right? So reportedly... Two Ghosts and Perfect were about Taylor Swift. Yeah, so they both got two singles out of each other. I mean, Taylor gave the media the impression I Knew You Were Trouble was about Harry. She also wrote Style, (laughs) which practically used his surname to push a song. Then Harry had his own two singles. So they both probably cashed in. And if that's the case, fucking power to them. Absolute power to them. But let's fast forward to September 2014, because at this point in the story, Taylor Swift is 24 years old. She had cut her hair into a lob. She'd moved to New York and she was about to release her fifth album, her first ever pure pop album called 1989. And what a fucking album it is. Unlike Speak Now or Red, this album didn't contain any songs calling out Taylor's exes in a negative way. A few of the songs like Style that we just mentioned or Out of the Woods were about her kind of wistfully looking back on past relationships, but in a more nostalgic and analytical way than the tone we had heard from her in previous albums. It felt like, I think with hindsight, she took note of the coverage around her and her love life and thought, I don't want to give rise to that, so I'm going to not write about it as much in this album. Now, in an interview with Rolling Stone, she said, different phases of your life have different levels of deep, traumatizing heartbreak. And in this period of my life, my heart was not irreparably broken. So it's not as boy-centric of an album because my life hasn't been boy-centric. She also suggested by this point that she hadn't gone out with anyone since she broke up with Harry Styles. She said, like, have not gone on a date. People are going to feel sorry for me when you write that, but it's true. She was really making a conscious effort, really sadly, to push back on this narrative that all she did was date people. Yeah, and it it really reminds you of those viral interview clips of Taylor Swift being asked on red carpets, like, are you going to walk home with a bunch of men tonight? Like, she clearly felt the need to tell the world, I am single and very much single and not dating, to try and course correct where her public image was going, which is super sad. The new strategy, though, worked. 1989 in general worked. It was incredibly successful. The album sold over 1 million copies in its first week, spent 11 weeks at the top of the Billboard 200 chart, and it went on to eventually win Album of the Year and Best Pop Album at the Grammys. Yeah, and while Taylor Swift didn't speak negatively about any ex-boyfriends in the album, she did reportedly come after another female artist by the name of Katy Perry. In that 2014 interview with Rolling Stone that we referenced just earlier, Taylor said that one song off her upcoming album, a song called Bad Blood, was about another female musician. She didn't mention the name of this singer 
in the interview, but explained that for years, I was never sure if we were friends or not. She would come up to me at awards shows and say something and walk away. And I would think, are we friends? Or did she just give me the harshest insult of my life? Yeah. Taylor also said in that interview that years earlier, the artist, and I quote, did something so horrible. I was like, oh, we're just straight up enemies. And it wasn't even about a guy. It had to do with business. She basically tried to sabotage an entire arena tour. She tried to hire a bunch of people out from under me. And I'm surprisingly non-confrontational. You would not believe how much I hate conflict. So now I have to avoid her. It's awkward and I don't like it. Taylor said she was intent on not trying to create some kind of gossip fest with the song. But I kind of think she was. I mean, you don't give you quotes are. like this. You don't write a song like Bad Blood. You don't do any of what she just did. If you don't want the gossip circle, that like whisper network to really kick into overdrive. She knew with the history of people trying to guess which songs were about her ex-boyfriends that if she came out and said, well, it's not a a guy this time, it's not even an ex-boyfriend this time, it's a public enemy, a female public enemy. People are going to do exactly the same thing. Fans and media definitely started to speculate and all of that speculation settled on it probably being Katy Perry. Now, the reason for that (laughs) is thanks to an article that had come out in a Tasmanian newspaper. Shout out to Tassie. How was this a Tasmanian newspaper that did this? Well, it came out the year before in 2013. The paper interviewed a local dancer called Lockhart Brownlee who toured with Katy Perry in 2011. He said he and two of Katy's other dancers had joined Taylor Swift's Red Tour but left the tour to rejoin Katie for her own tour. Yeah, on top of all that, Katie also dated one of Taylor Swift's ex-boyfriends, John Mayer, shortly after they split. So you have the business tension, the personal life tension and overall a pretty soured friendship. Yeah, and if that wasn't all kind of proof enough, the day after Taylor's Vanity Fair profile came out where she gave some quotes hinting about this, Katy Perry tweeted, watch out for the Regina George in sheep's clothing. Now, years later, when the feud was still bubbling away, Katy Perry actually finally explained her side of the story. She said she started it and it's time for her to finish it. There's like three backup dancers who went on tour with her and they asked me before they went on tour if they could go and I said, of course. But I would be on record cycle probably in about a year, so be sure to put a 30-day contingency in your contract so you can get out if you want to join me when I say I'm going back on. And so that year came up and I texted all of them because I'm very close with them and said, just FYI, I'm about to start. Just put the word out there. And they talked to their management and they all got fired. And I tried to talk to her about it and she wouldn't speak to me. There was a full shutdown and then she writes a song about me. (sighs) If I may make a point as well, there were quotes we said earlier in a profile where Taylor Swift said, you know, I hate conflict. I have to avoid her now. But it's like, well, you hate conflict, but you're playing this all out publicly. So it's conflict in one way or another. Yeah. It's like you hate conflict when you have to speak to someone person to person, but if you can slam them in a song similar, dare I say, to the Camilla Bell incident, you're okay with that kind of conflict because that conflict suits the power balance on your side. You know that your fans will back you. You know, you have that cushioning of public opinion and this kind of conflict, we just get your side of things. It's not very evenly weighted. 
Yeah, I, I don't think it was her finest era around this time, the Katy Perry stuff. I would be surprised if Taylor Swift didn't look back on that and agree mm. with a lot of people who say that because it just doesn't read well. It just it just simply doesn't read well because not only did she write a song about Katy Perry, she made a music video starring all of her very famous girlfriends. In 2015, Taylor released the Bad Blood music video, which was basically like a homage to what had become known as her squad. It yeah. featured people like Selena Gomez, Lena Dunham, Cara Delevingne, Gigi Hadid and Carly Kloss. Very high-powered group of women. Like we are talking some of those names, Selena Gomez in particular, we're talking like A-grade celebrities and you end up with this situation when all those women are in this music video about Katy Perry. It feels like Katy Perry's being ganged up on. It feels like it's a little bit high school bully-esque. Well, it feels very much like you've got a whole group of women against one other Mm. in a music video called Bad Blood. She was photographed a lot in 2015 with her squad. And what I find interesting, again, about the power of hindsight with the squad narrative is that, again, it feels like Taylor was so hyper-aware of the commentary about her love life that she lent so heavily into her friends that Mm. that became a story in and of itself. In 2015, she was posting photos of herself vacationing with the Heim sisters. She was on the cover of Vogue with Carly Kloss. She performed on stage with some of her Bad Blood music video co-stars during the 1989 World Tour. She was bringing them out and making it part of her brand. Yeah, and you can understand why again, but it just wasn't executed quite right. Taylor Swift was really willing to drop some of these friends' names in interviews as well. In the Rolling Stone interview we keep referencing, Taylor talked about her famous girlfriends. While giving the journalist a tour of her $15 million apartment, Taylor pointed out some of the guest bedrooms. She said, this is where Carly usually stays. She went on to add that they met at the Victoria's Secret Fashion Show in 2014. So which was just the year before, by the way. Yeah, not very long. She pulled out a rack full of white nightgowns and said, this is a thing me and Lena Dunham have. She said, we wear them during the day and look like pioneer women fresh off the Oregon trail. She also mentioned wanting her best friend Selena Gomez to move from LA to New York and how she felt so inspired by her good friend Lord. And again, like I'm competing with my own brain here because I'm like, she's allowed to have famous friends. She's allowed to talk about them. But you can see how slowly, very, very slowly, this began to grate on the public because it looked like there was an in crowd, the cool girls, and then there were the girls like Katy Perry left out in the cold. Yeah. She also said that she gained more girlfriends as a result of being single after breaking up with Harry Styles. So you can again see exactly what she's trying to do. She told Rolling Stone, when your number one priority is getting a boyfriend, you're more inclined to see a beautiful girl and think, oh, she's going to get that hot guy I wish I was dating. But when you're not boyfriend shopping, you're able to step back and see other girls who are killing it and think, God, I want to be around her. It's like this blazing bonfire. You can either be afraid of it because it's so powerful and strong, or you can go stand near it because it's fun and makes you brighter. Mm. There is an element of youth that comes across with these quotes, I think, like listening and hearing and sensing Taylor's own internal battle with herself about other women and trying to kind of re-engineer the internalised misogyny that the world inserts in all of us, right? Taylor's squad, though, brought her even more criticism than I think she ever could have anticipated. And I actually think was almost as big a focus 
or as big a story as her dating life. So by the start of 2015, Taylor Swift began dating musician Calvin Harris, whose real name is Adam Richard Wiles. This was by far her most public relationship to date. They reportedly met in Feb 2015 at the Elle Style Awards, and the very next night they were spotted flirting and holding hands at the Brits after party. Yeah, we really saw the rise and fall of this relationship documented everywhere. Like we saw it in such embryonic stages. Things moved really quickly between Calvin and Taylor. In March, Taylor was seen attending one of his concerts. The following week, they were photographed wearing matching outfits while shopping at Whole Foods. In April, they became internet official after Calvin posted a photo of Taylor's two cats to his Instagram with the caption moment. So we had this bubbling away, right? Taylor Swift seems to be very happy in this relationship. Apart from sort of bubbling, simmering commentary that still was existing about the squad. There was not a heap going on. But then in July 2015, her reputation takes a massive hit when she gets into a Twitter feud with Nicki Minaj. Yeah, some context for those who can't remember. Nicki Minaj was upset in July 2015 because Anaconda, one of the biggest songs of 2015, if not the biggest song, wasn't nominated at the 2015 VMAs for Music Video of the Year, which now just seems bizarre because I can see every scene of that music video exactly. in, like, imprinted in my brain. I don't remember many music videos, but I remember that one and I remember it being really widely talked about and pretty iconic. A massive cultural moment. The videos that were nominated that year were Taylor Swift's Bad Blood music video, of course, for all its celebrity cameos that we referenced before, Beyonce's 7-Eleven, Ed Sheeran's Thinking Out Loud, Mark Ronson and Bruno Mars's Uptown Funk, and Kendrick Lamar's All Right. Now, Nicki Minaj was upset about this and tweeted out to the world, if I was a different kind of artist, Anaconda would be nominated for Best Choreo and Vid of the Year as well. She pointed out the huge impact the music video had on so many people and also wrote, you couldn't go on social media without seeing people doing the cover art, choreo, outfits for Halloween, an impact like that and no video of the year nomination. When the other girls drop a video that breaks records, and impacts culture, they get that nomination. And if your video celebrates women with very slim bodies, you will be nominated for video of the year. Now, Taylor Swift hit back at this despite the fact she wasn't mentioned in the tweet. She tweeted at Nikki, I've done nothing but love and support you. It's unlike you to pit women against each other. Maybe one of the men took your spot. Nikki responded to this naturally and said, huh, you must not be reading my tweets. Didn't say a word about you. I love you just as much, but you should speak on this Taylor Swift. Fans and other artists started weighing in on the conversation and news outlets started to report on the feud. But as The Guardian pointed out, publications like Glamour, Daily Mail and Entertainment Weekly were using photos of like Nicki Minaj pulling faces or looking a bit daft or simply like focusing in on her bum in their coverage. And The Guardian wrote about this saying, the underlying message is that she's wacky, unhinged and clearly the hypersensitive loser here. Ones of Swift by comparison show her looking soft, delicate and unthreatening, the victim under attack. Mm -hmm. There is no doubt that 
Nicki Minaj was absolutely fair in her commentary about the VMAs and all she wanted and needed was someone as powerful as Taylor Swift to say I agree with you rather than take on that sort of victim role. Yeah I also think knowing what we know now and how far we've come thankfully not far enough but still come a decent way in the last six years to not see the racial dynamic here and to kind of fall back Taylor as a white woman to fall back on the how dare you pit women against women. As if all women are the same. On the same level playing field when we just know for a fact, unfortunately, they're not, particularly when it comes to industry awards shows like this. It's a shame that Taylor Swift in that moment couldn't have a more bird's eye, impersonal view of the situation. Now, Nikki loved that Guardian story that you referenced before, Zara. It was very analytical and very intelligent and she posted a screenshot of an excerpt the day after it went viral. She tweeted it with the caption, The Guardian, just one of the many eye-opening portions of this truth-telling article. Even Katy Perry took the opportunity to subtweet about Taylor Swift's response to Nicki Minaj. She tweeted, Finding it ironic to parade the pit women against other women argument about as one immeasurably capitalises on the takedown of a woman. Mm, Finally, two days after this all went down, Taylor Swift clearly had a moment to think about her behaviour and then tweeted out a public apology. She wrote, I thought I was being called out. I missed the point. I misunderstood. Then I misspoke. I'm sorry, Nikki. Nikki then responded to that saying, that means so much, Taylor. Thank you at Taylor Swift 13. Now, everything between these two women ended up being kind of smoothed over. Things were fine. They even performed a joint mashup of their songs at the VMAs that year and hugged on stage at the end. But the damage to Taylor's reputation was done. This moment was really significant for Taylor Swift because all of a sudden people were starting to see her playing the victim. Yeah, and people didn't really like it. Things only really started to get worse here in 2016. So seven months later, things go from bad to worse. Contextually, she's still dating Calvin Harris, so we still have Calvin in the picture. But this is when Kanye West releases his very famous song, Famous. Famous. Now, as we know, things had been pretty bad between Kanye and Taylor after that VMA's controversy from many years before, but they had spent the last four or five years really trying to patch things up and their relationship seemed to be cordial at the very least. They were really trying. So in Feb 2015, Kanye told Ryan Seacrest that he and Taylor were talking about recording together. In August 2015, their relationship came full circle after she presented him with a VMA award. She also told the crowd that his album, College Dropout, was the first album that her brother and her bought on iTunes when she was 12. So as you can see, they are just dropping little hints that, you know what, that thing happened back in the past, but we're okay now. We've built a bridge. Yes. And then in February 2016, the bridge was blown up because Kanye West was dropping a new song called Famous with the lyric, I feel like me and Taylor might still have sex. Why? I made that bitch famous. Taylor was furious and so were her fans, especially since, according to Taylor's representatives, she hadn't given approval for the line. 
Her representatives told Billboard at the time Kanye did not call for approval but to ask Taylor to release his single Famous on her Twitter account. She declined and cautioned him about releasing a song with such a strong misogynistic message. Taylor was never made aware of the actual lyric, I made that bitch famous. Yeah, when Taylor got up on stage at the 2016 Grammys after winning Album of the Year, she used her acceptance speech to call out Kanye. This is what she said. And as the first woman to win album of the year at the Grammys twice. I want to say to all the young women out there, there are going to be people along the way who will try to undercut your success or take credit for your accomplishments or your fame. But if you just focus on the work and you don't let those people sidetrack you, someday when you get where you're going, You'll look around and you will know that it was you and the people who love you who put you there. And that will be the greatest feeling in the world. All right, so we have that. We put it to a side, it's simmering. We've put it on like a low heat. There's so much going on that there's a lot on a low heat at the moment. So where are Taylor and Calvin at right now? Well, at the start of 2016, they seemed pretty strong. In March of 2016, they publicly celebrated their one-year anniversary together. They posted on Instagram about it and things were looking pretty serious. At the 2016 iHeart Music Awards, she even gave him a shout out in her acceptance speech for her 1989 world tour. She said, for the first time, I had the most amazing person to come home to when the crowds were all gone and the spotlight went out. So I would like to thank my boyfriend, Adam, for that. Mm, That same month, Taylor appeared in Vogue's 72 Questions video, during which she revealed that her boyfriend i.e. Calvin, had planted an olive tree in her backyard as a Christmas present. However, from April, things seemed to change very, very quickly. Now, in April, this was the month that Taylor revealed she was the cover girl for the May issue of Vogue, and as part of that photo shoot, had bleached her hair platinum blonde. That same month, she attended Coachella for the first time, where Calvin was performing his new song featuring Rihanna called This Is What You Came For. You might remember a very famous photo that Taylor posted to Instagram of her with her white blonde hair, sunglasses, red lipstick, wearing a jacket with the cover art for that new song on the back of it. This era of Taylor's life is pretty iconically known as Bleachella and I hazard a guess that Taylor Swift of 2021 would rather forget this period of time. Well, it became the period that was so marred in controversy and then just so tied to her looking differently to what we were used to. Her style changed completely. Yeah, it it was an interesting branding decision. In May, Taylor and her bleach blonde hair attended and co-chaired the Met Gala. Now, two very significant things happened that night, Mish. She met a 25-year-old up-and-coming British actor by the name of Joe Alwyn, who we will meet a little bit later, (laughs) but it was also the first time that she was filmed dancing with the British actor Tom Hiddleston. Taylor was 26 at the time. He was 35. Yeah, almost exactly a month after that video of Tom and Taylor dancing together at the Met Gala came out, People magazine exclusively reported that Taylor and Calvin Harris were done. They had been dating for 15 months and a source close to the couple told People that there was no drama surrounding the breakup, that things just don't work out sometimes. No one cheated. (laughs) 
<laughs> no one asked. Yeah, well, even if they did ask, it's not really the kind of thing you remind people about. Yeah, it's like it's like one of those things where it's like, why are you bringing that yeah, up? Yeah, 100%. At first, it really did seem like an amicable breakup. On June 2nd, Calvin tweeted, the only truth here is that a relationship came to an end and what remains is a huge amount of love and respect. Taylor retweeted that, but just 13 days later on June 15, I didn't realise, I knew the timeline was quick, I just didn't realise it was this quick. It's pretty quick. Taylor was photographed kissing, holding hands and walking on a beach in Rhode Island with Tom Hiddleston. The Sun newspaper ran a story that had a photo of them kissing on the front page with the headline, Tinker Taylor snogs a spy. I love that headline so much. After those photos came out, Things really did sour between Calvin and Taylor. The same day that they were pictured kissing on that cover, she and Calvin Harris scrubbed their social media accounts of one another. And you know when photos together are being deleted or archived, shit has gone down. Meanwhile, the Kanye West famous drama was rearing its head again. Kim did an interview with GQ that came out on June 16 a day after those photos of her with Tom Hiddleston come out, alleging that Taylor had actually approved that famous lyric in a recorded phone conversation with Kanye. Here is that passage between Kim Kardashian and GQ. She totally approved that, Kim says, shaking her head in annoyance. She totally knew that was coming out. She wanted to all of a sudden act like she didn't. I swear my husband gets so much shit for things when he is really doing proper protocol and even called to get it approved. And then the journalist writes, Kim is on a roll now speaking faster and more animatedly than at any other point during our time together. The article went on and here's another quote from Kim. Taylor totally gave the okay. Rick Rubin was there. So many respected people in the music business heard that conversation and knew. I mean, he's called me a bitch in his songs. That's just like what they say. I never once think, what a derogatory word. How dare he? Not in a million years. I don't know why she just, you know, flipped all of a sudden. It was funny because on the call with Kanye, Taylor said, when I get on the Grammy red carpet, all the media is going to think that I'm so against this. And I'll just laugh and say, the joke's on you guys. I was in on it the whole time. And I'm just like, wait, but in your Grammy speech, you completely dissed my husband just to play the victim again. Felt very much like Kim Kardashian knew what she was doing here when she mentioned the concept of playing the victim, because Mm. I think it was what a lot of criticism had in common when it was levelled at Taylor during this time. It's also funny to hear Kim Kardashian be so sort of open and dramatic about things to the media because I just don't think she'd do that anymore. But in response, Taylor's representatives released another statement to Billboard saying she didn't hold anything against Kim knowing the pressure she would be under. This is so, this statement from Taylor's people or this response is one of the more befuddling things that we have found in our scandal research. She doesn't hold anything against Kim knowing the pressure she would be under. So implying that Kim is only saying this because her husband's telling her to? Is that the inference with that statement? I don't know. It went on. This does not change the fact that much of what Kim is saying is incorrect. Kanye West and Taylor only spoke once on the phone while she was on vacation with her family in January of 2016 and they have never spoken since. A song cannot be approved if it was never heard. Kanye West never played the song for Taylor Swift. Taylor Swift heard it for the first time when everyone else did and was humiliated. 
To make matters far more complicated, Mish, it was around this time at the end of June in 2016 that the video, the music video I should say, for Famous was released. Now, when this video was released, it attracted a lot of attention. It went for over 10 minutes. And in the first sort of minute or two of that video, the camera pans across 11 lifelike wax figures of naked celebrities lying in bed with Kanye West. Yeah, that's absolutely right. These high-profile people were Taylor Swift, George Bush, Anna Wintour, Donald Trump, Rihanna, Chris Brown, Ray J, Amber Rose, Caitlyn Jenner and Bill Cosby. Now, notably, not only did Kanye strip down these celebrities and kind of mock up what their naked bodies might look like, he also put Rihanna in this bed next to Chris Brown, the man who assaulted and abused her. Yeah, exactly. He also had a lot of these women, including Taylor Swift, lying on their backs with their boobs or I guess the imagination of what their boobs would look like visible I think it also should be noted that his wife at the time, Kim Kardashian, got to lie on her stomach, so we only saw her back. Yeah, this is a really interesting part of the video, actually. There are no male celebrities with their genitalia exposed. That is reserved only for the female celebrities. And it's extremely creepy when you imagine Kanye West and whatever music producer, graphic designer, artist sitting in a room together, figuring out what different women's breasts must look like. Yeah, like mocking them up. It's like quite horrendous to think about. Leonard Dunham actually spoke publicly about this when it happened. She actually said that the video brought to mind Stanford University rapist Brock Turner, who was very much in the news around this time. She wrote, now I have to see the prone, unconscious, waxy bodies of famous women twisted like they've been drugged and chucked aside at a rager. Seeing a woman I love like Taylor Swift, fuck, that one hurt to look at, I couldn't look. A woman I admire like Rihanna or Anna, reduced to a pair of wax breasts made by some special effects guy in the valley. It makes me feel sad and unsafe and worried. Yeah. I actually don't think a lot of the best commentary on this music video happened when it was released. I think we almost needed time to look back and go, what the fuck was this? And how did anyone accept that this was the standard that we were going to walk past? There is a mural, literally maybe 500 metres from where we're recording this podcast, that someone, an artist, has gotten up and on the side of the building drawn naked Taylor Swift next to Kanye West and Kim Kardashian. That is still up now in 2021. That is something the Richmond train station people, anyone on a train at that station in Melbourne, sees every morning that they go to work. Yeah, it's been up for over five years now. Now, As you say, Mish, you're right. I think a lot of the good commentary around this has happened in the years since. There was a tweet that actually went viral in 2019 that said, the famous music video was straight up revenge porn, not to mention putting abuse victims next to their abusers and celebrating sexual assaulters. It was disgusting and he doesn't get enough crap for it. Now that tweet, because it was liked over 5,000 times, was reposted on Instagram and that Instagram post was actually liked by Taylor Swift. It's also interesting to me, Mish, that to this day when we've been doing research for this episode, that music video is still up on YouTube, which feels bizarre because surely in some way, shape or form, it does violate their policies. Yeah. Well, YouTube show you a banner that says this might be inappropriate content. Do you want to proceed? And it's like, why are you even standing by this as a company? Surely by 2021, 2022, we are advanced enough now to see how awful 
awful the famous music video is and accept that this should not be shown to the masses. Exactly. Now, Mish, on the same day that this music video premiered at like a title exclusive event, Mm. Calvin Harris was out on Instagram replying to a number of comments about him and Taylor that he quickly deleted. According to reports, when one fan asked what the real reason was behind the breakup, he wrote that Taylor, and I quote, controlled the media and this situation and that I had no idea what was going on. So that kind of makes it a lot worse from my perspective. As this is going on, as Calvin's sort of writing this stuff on social media and you realise actually he's not happy about this breakup, Tom Hiddleston and Taylor Swift are embarking on a very public, very worldwide romance. They took themselves on tour. Yes. In June, they were spotted dancing at Selena Gomez's Nashville concert. They were going on dates. They were pictured hanging out with Tom's mom in England. By the end of June, they were also seen making out in Rome. Tom also attended her infamous 4th of July party. Again, I'm not kidding. This is still all in the same month where there were photos of Tom sliding down a giant water slide with Cara Delevingne and Blake Lively and Ryan Reynolds. Days later, they were seen in the ocean near her home with her friends and a photo went viral of him wearing an I Love TS t-shirt. What I remember as a diehard Taylor fan, I remember sitting at my desk at my old job, seeing these pap photos be published and just thinking, what the fuck is she doing? Like, what is she doing? For me, it was, what have I missed? Like, I was trying to read this being like, there has to be some bigger meaning or some bigger story for this to make sense because it's not making sense to me right now. What was behind that top? That has literally perplexed me since the day it happened all those years ago. Why was Tom Hiddleston wearing an I Heart TS top when they had been dating for all of a few weeks? She had gone through this very public breakup, this very public scandal. Was this Taylor's team trying to distract, thinking that this top or something, him being in this outfit, was going to detract from the scandal? Was it a sense of humour thing? Like she has a sense of humour, he has a sense of humour, they can poke fun at themselves. I actually still don't know. And it really does go against sort of publicity 101, which is when you're getting this many bad headlines, go to ground. Like go to ground and don't come up for air for a little while. But instead she did the opposite. She was just everywhere. And I think it took a year or two for her to learn that when bad publicity comes, the best thing you can do is disappear out of the public eye Now, if you thought that was the extent of the Calvin Harris-Taylor Swift drama, you were wrong. On July 13, may I remind you once again, this is all still within about a month of each other, reports emerged that Taylor Swift had co-written Calvin Harris's hit song, This Is What You Came For. Quite a banger. TMZ reported that Swift wrote the song and sent a demo to Calvin who loved it. So the pair went into the studio, did a full demo with Taylor singing and Calvin laying down the track as they say in the music industry, (laughs) at the time they were apparently worried that having both of their names on the track would distract from the music so she said she'd use a pseudonym. Yeah, she used a pseudonym and the two were very, very secretive about this collaboration. So much so that on the day that This Is What You Came For was released, Calvin went on Ryan Seacrest's radio show. Shout out to Ryan Seacrest, you're back. (laughs) Second time this episode. And when he was asked if he and Taylor would ever work together, he responded, you know, we haven't even spoken about it. I can't see it happening though. So they're trying to put out, when they were together, trying to put out this image of we love each other, we're in a great relationship, but we don't want to blur the lines between professional life and work life. 
According to TMZ, that quote was actually the breaking point in their relationship. Reportedly, Taylor was really hurt that Kelvin went so far to lie about her involvement on national radio and felt that he had taken their agreement of anonymity or secrecy too far. The thing about this story is if I'm going to hazard a guess, Taylor Swift was copying a bit of heat in the public eye, particularly around her relationship with Tom Hiddleston. If her team are having to come out and say there was no cheating involved, they're obviously self-conscious about the fact that it appears like there was cheating involved. She's clearly come out and said, actually, this was the breaking point of the relationship. Here's another story to talk about instead of my relationship or my new relationship. After the news broke, Calvin Harris took to Twitter to confirm that the song had in fact been written by Taylor Swift. He added that she sings on a little bit of it too. Amazing lyric writer and she smashed it as usual. He then went on and said, I wrote the music, produced the song, arranged it and cut the vocals though. And she initially wanted to keep it a secret, hence the pseudonym. He didn't stop there though. He also tweeted, Hurtful to me at this point that her and her team would go so far out of their way to make me look bad at this stage, though. I figure if you're happy in your new relationship, you should focus on that instead of trying to tear your ex-boyfriend down for something to do. He went on. So the tone started really nice and then it was just like, ah! Yeah, it started with what an incredible artiste to you're tearing me down to this I know you're off tour and you need someone new to try and bury like Katie, etc. but I'm not that guy. Sorry, I won't allow it. Please focus on the positive aspects of your, in capital letters, life because you've earned a great one. Unfortunately for Taylor Swift, Katy Perry responded to this. <laughs> she retweeted a post of hers from the year before that read, Time, the ultimate truth teller. In a separate tweet, she posted a gif or a gif, who knows how that word's pronounced, of Hillary Clinton raising her eyebrows. So by July 14, about a month after Kim Kardashian did that GQ interview, the hashtag Taylor Swift is over party started trending worldwide on Twitter. Now, what's interesting is when I thought about that hashtag, knowing Taylor Swift is over party was something that happened, I thought it was in relation to the Kanye stuff and the Kim stuff, Mm. little did my tiny brain remember that it wasn't just (laughs) Kanye and it wasn't just Kim. It was Tom Hiddleston. It was Calvin Harris. It was everything else that was happening in these few weeks. It was Katy Perry. The media started penning articles about how much everyone hated Taylor. One of the more prickly articles around this time was actually published in news.com.au. The article opened with this line, Taylor Swift's reign is crashing down before our eyes and I'm loving every second of it. Taylor is never genuine and ultimately Taylor Swift just seems like a brat. Look, there is no doubt that Taylor made some pretty big missteps during this period. I don't think anyone can deny that, but that just seems like sexist crap to me. Mm. And to revel and enjoy someone's downfall feels like a little bit sick to me, to be honest. I think it's like... It's ugly. It's really ugly. OK Magazine ran the headline, is Taylor Swift bad for Tom Hiddleston's career? While Vox observed of the coverage at the time, somehow, as many angry observers implied, Hiddleston and his smoother silk British accent was supposed to be better than this and, by proxy, deserving of someone better than Swift. Mm, Lots of people accused 
Hiddleston and Swift for concocting a PR relationship designed purely for attention. Some also thought they were oddly trying to promote an upcoming music video. I remember that. Yeah. I remember people saying they're filming a music video and it's all very meta and it's about the paparazzi and that's where the I Heart TS shirt is coming into it because we're all going to laugh at ourselves in a few days. That didn't turn out. We never out. got to laugh at it. Where was our music video? Some people also thought that Tom was dating Taylor to increase his public profile in a bid to play the next James Bond or as part of an elaborate Emmy campaign. Another conspiracy was that Taylor's boyfriends, including Tom, were all there to throw us off another underground truth that Taylor was actually queer and in a relationship with Carly Kloss. The rumours were so out of hand that Tom told The Hollywood Reporter that it was not a publicity stunt and that they were very happy together. Again, if you're having to come out and clarify that it's not a publicity stunt, it's not a very good sign for the state of your relationship. And just when he thought things couldn't get worse, and I really honestly think we've said that about seven times throughout this episode, Kim Kardashian delivered the final blow on July 17, so that was just three days after the Taylor Swift is over party started trending, Kim released footage on Snapchat of the recorded video conversation of Kanye talking to Taylor on the phone. She only posted three minutes of that recording. Yeah. But enough. Yeah, it was enough. In the recording, both Kanye and Taylor talked about the line, I feel like me and Taylor might still have sex, and the recording showed that Taylor said she was okay with it. Noticeably, there was no footage of them talking about the line, I made that bitch famous, but it didn't matter. People took this three-minute recording as evidence that Taylor had lied. The Verge ran an article with the headline, Kim Kardashian used Snapchat to prove Taylor Swift was lying about Kanye West's famous. A new hashtag joined the party too. We now had hashtag Kim exposed Taylor party. Yeah. And it's interesting because I think from all reports and all of our digging and all our research, at actually no juncture did Taylor Swift lie. She never lied. She always said specifically that it was that line that she didn't get approved. I think it was just the inference that she gave that she didn't know any of it was happening that kind of maybe threw her story off a bit. Now, Kim Kardashian tweeted on July 18, wait, it's legit National Snake Day. They have holidays for everybody. I mean, everything these days, followed by lots of snake emojis. People started flooding Taylor's social media accounts with snake emojis as a result. Yeah, this time, rather than going through her reps to release a statement, Taylor fronted the media herself. She screenshotted a long note that she had typed on her phone and posted it to both her Twitter and Instagram accounts. In that note, she asked, where is the video of Kanye telling me he was going to call me that bitch? It doesn't exist because it never happened. While I wanted to be supportive of Kanye on the phone call, you cannot approve a song you haven't heard. Being falsely painted as a liar when I was never given the full story or played any part of the song is character assassination. I'm curious on your thoughts on this, Zara, but I think it would have been stronger for her to include the line, I made that bitch famous. I think the inference that Kanye made Taylor famous is more offensive than just the phrase that bitch. She would have done herself a greater service to include the I made that bitch famous full quote because that's the offensive thing that a man's looking at a young woman and saying I'm responsible for your success. When we're looking across rap music, yes, let's have a conversation about calling women bitches and sluts and all those things. 
but the I made that bitch famous bit was the important bit and she didn't put that in her statement. I don't think it would have mattered. Really? No, I think people had made their minds up and it didn't matter how many clarifications she was going to give, nothing was going to work. Like people knew that's the line she was talking about. Her being explicit about it, I don't think in my opinion, it would have changed anything. The pylon continued. Publications ran headlines like, is America turning on Taylor Swift? Others said, Taylor Swift, liar. Fed up friends and exes expose her deepest secrets. A little later on, BuzzFeed ran an entire article called How Taylor Swift Played the Victim for a Decade and Made Her Entire Career. Mm. At the time, there were small parts of the internet in her corner, but they were pretty small. The Guardian pointed out that while she wasn't without fault, the coverage of her at this time was rooted in, and I quote, themes as old as the Bible, suspicion of successful women, resentment of unapologetic women, and need for women to know their place. The piece went on to say, Swift writes catchy songs about some ex-boyfriends, appears surprised when she wins awards, complains about how she has been represented in a Kanye West song and is never photographed with a hair out of place. Those are her crimes and they are apparently unforgivable. I love that quote so, so much. For the first time in her career, Taylor Swift went to ground. She fell completely quiet. She stopped posting regularly on social media. She stopped doing press interviews. She didn't release a new album in 2016, which broke her tradition of putting an album out every two years. She simply disappeared. And after three months of dating in September 2016, Tom Hiddleston and Taylor Swift quietly broke up. Yeah, and very soon she would completely wipe her Instagram account clean, even her profile picture. She would delete every post. She would unfollow every account. And why was that, Michelle? Because it was time for the reinvention of Taylor Swift. Before we can leave 2016 in the past, we do need to talk about one more huge thing that caused damage to Taylor Swift's reputation, which was her silence around the US presidential election. I'm sure so many of our listeners will remember how tense that time was leading into the election between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. There was just a lot of stress in the air, I think, Mm. a lot of worry and tensions were high. Yeah, I think as well, once Donald Trump did win that election, a lot of angry and upset people, justifiably angry and upset people, turned to celebrities and did want to point the finger and went, you didn't help our cause, you didn't stand up for Hillary Clinton, you were part of the problem. So when Trump won, everything went from bad to worse. Taylor had posted a photo saying she was going to go vote and encouraged others to do the same, but she didn't endorse a particular candidate, which by 2016 was a little bit outdated. By 2016, we wanted celebrities to be political and to tell us what they stood for. Exactly. I mean, no one can possibly blame Taylor Swift for Donald Trump winning the election, but I do think people tried, Mish. Now, the reason her silence was taken so seriously is because for years, the fact that she hadn't weighed in on politics had been interpreted by some members of the alt-right as evidence that she was secretly a member of the alt-right. Now, a bit more context on this one because this narrative had been going on for a little while. By May 2016, a few months before the election, a neo-Nazi website called The Daily Stormer had published 24 articles about Taylor, which included a conspiracy theory that she was a covert Nazi herself. 
In one post, the author wrote, Taylor Swift is a pure Aryan goddess, like something out of classical Greek poetry. It is also an established fact that Taylor Swift is secretly a Nazi and is simply waiting for a time when Donald Trump makes it safe for her to come out and announce her Aryan agenda to the world. Probably she will be betrothed to Trump's son and they will be crowned American royalty. Mm, It's unclear exactly when these blog posts, the Nazi memes around Taylor, began. We do know they were garnering a heap of momentum by 2016. And this isn't to say that this was a widely held belief. This was, of course, in very niche, very unusual corners of the internet. But the fact that the conspiracy theory was becoming more widely known and Taylor didn't come out to denounce it, lended itself to the idea that maybe she was somehow in some way a member of the alt-right. Yeah, crazy stuff. And as you say, it didn't help that she'd never really spoken about politics before, perhaps except for a 2009 interview, which was seven years earlier, with Rolling Stone, which was the year after Obama had been elected. She told the magazine at the time, I've never seen this country so happy about a political decision in my entire time of being alive. I'm so glad this was my first election. She also told Time magazine in 2012 that she didn't talk about politics because, and I quote, it might influence other people. And I don't think I know enough yet in life to be telling people who to vote for. Mm, She later told The Guardian that in addition to feeling uneducated, she also felt conflicted talking about politics, fearing that it might cost her her career. She had been taught by people in the industry, particularly in the country music industry, that it's not a musician or a singer's place to talk about politics. For example, and she raised this in a Netflix documentary that she would do a couple of years later, the chicks were continually held up as the prime example of what could happen to you if you did become political. Exactly. And if you don't know what happened to the Dixie Chicks, now actually referred to and known as the Chicks, in 2003, they denounced the Iraq war and said they were ashamed to share the home state of Texas with then President George W. Bush. This led to a huge, huge boycott of their music. Taylor told The Guardian about this. I watched country music snuff that candle out. The most amazing group we had just because they talked about politics. And they were getting death threats. They were made such an example that basically every country artist that came after that, every label tells you just do not get involved no matter what. Mm. To her credit, I mean, yes, of course, where we can, we want high profile people talking about politics and standing up for what is right. But when you're a young musician and this is the stuff that's coming before you, would many people make a different decision? Mm, No, I don't think they would. And it's really interesting going back and watching some interviews that Taylor does in her very early career, say when she's between the ages of 18 and 22, when she's asked about her apoliticalness by TV show hosts, for example, there's one night show host that said, oh, you don't really see it to be your place to talk about politics. And Taylor responded saying, well, I'm just a 21-year-old girl who writes about boys and romance and love songs. I don't want to tell other people what to think. And that received raucous applause. She was applauded for so long for being apolitical. So I imagine it would have been quite the shock to have that sentiment flip Not overnight, but I would say very, very quickly. It was a very quick flick of a switch for us to go, now we want celebrities to tell us what's on their mind. Yeah, and I think it was natural that that happened because the stakes felt so high. Mm. So I understand why the switch was flicked so quickly too. So you can see why people wanted her to speak so much. I wanted her to speak so much, but you can also understand why she felt so conflicted about that. And add that to the fact that very likely Taylor Swift probably didn't want to acknowledge 
these rumors and these conspiracy theories about her being a quote unquote secret member of the alt-right because doing that and acknowledging those conspiracy theories exist just gives them a bigger platform. Yeah, absolutely. On top of that, she has said she was not in a good place in her life or career back in 2016. She told The Guardian, I felt completely voiceless. I just felt like, oh God, who would want me, honestly? The Guardian also asked whether she would have otherwise endorsed Hillary Clinton if she felt like she could speak on politics. She said, of course, I just felt completely uh, just useless and maybe even like a hindrance. I was just trying to protect my mental health, not read the news very much, go cast my vote, tell people to vote. I just knew what I could handle and I knew what I couldn't. I was literally about to break for a while. Mm. And it was around this time in November 2016 that Taylor sort of disappeared. She stopped regularly posting on social media. She stopped doing press interviews. She avoided public appearances altogether. One artistic pursuit she did go down was she did collaborate with Zayn on I Don't Want to Live Forever, which was on the Fifty Shades of Grey soundtrack. But she didn't put out a new album in the year of 2016, which broke her streak of releasing a new album every two years. And for the majority of 2017, definitely the first half anyway, she was completely quiet. Yeah, we didn't hear much from her at all, which was such a change from 2016 where she was everywhere. The back end of 2017, though, Mish, was a pretty big few months for Taylor Swift. For one, the 27-year-old was preparing to take a man who had allegedly groped her to court, and that one-week trial began on August 7, 2017. It was pretty widely covered, wasn't it, in the press? Yeah, absolutely. And some context for those who can't quite remember, back in 2013, when Taylor was 23 years old, she alleged that radio personality David Mueller had groped her while she was on tour for the album Red. So this happened before a concert in Denver on June 2nd, 2013, when Taylor was hosting a fan meet and greet. David Mueller attended with his girlfriend and they both posed for a photo standing on either side of Taylor. Now, Taylor accused David of, and I quote, lifting her skirt with his hand and touching her bottom while the photo is being taken. The photo itself is all over the internet. I'm sure so many people listening to this have seen it. And in it, David's hand is positioned pretty far down behind her body. Like it's not around her shoulders. It's not around her waist. It disappears. It definitely disappears around her butt. Now, while she is smiling, she does look kind of uncomfortable. And at the time of the incident, she got her security team to kick David out of the venue. And she actually also put a lifetime ban on him ever attending her shows in the future. Her team also told the radio station where he worked and two days later they fired him. Now his bosses said that David had breached the morality clause in his contract after determining that he had lied about the incident and changed his story about what had happened. Mm, In 2015, David filed a defamation suit against Taylor Swift for $3 million. He said that he had never touched her inappropriately and lost his job and his reputation because of a false allegation. He said that Taylor must have confused Fused him with someone else, which is strange given we have the photo and his hand is definitely it's near low. her butt. Absolutely. Super low. A month later, Taylor actually responded by filing a countersuit against David for assault for a symbolic $1. Now, Taylor's lawyers wrote that Mueller's newfound claim that he is the wrong guy and therefore his termination from his workplace was unjustified is specious. Miss Swift knows exactly who committed the assault. It was Mueller. Mm, It's also interesting to note that at this time in history in 2017, 
This was before the Me Too movement, groping wasn't being taken very seriously as sexual assault, and media publications like BuzzFeed, even left-leaning media publications, kind of downgraded the severity of this incident and kind of made it a laughing matter. BuzzFeed referred to it in headlines as the, and I quote, butt-grabbing case. I also think that there was a really common misconception that she was pursuing this herself in court, which would have been so fine and incredible if that's what she wanted to do. But she wasn't the one that was making waves about this. He was suing her. So she was like, well, fine, I'll sue you right back if that's what you're going to do. On August 7, 2017, the trial finally began. David's lawyers argued that no one would be stupid enough to try and grope a major pop star in front of everyone. But if anyone actually did that day, it wasn't him. In court, he added that he jumped into the picture at the last second and may have accidentally jostled Taylor's ribcage. Now, (laughs) kind of two competing narratives going on saying it wasn't me, it wasn't me, but... Perhaps if it wasn't, if you are going to point the finger at me, I could have jostled your ribcage. And also, does he know where a ribcage is? I feel like it would have been far smarter to say her waist or something. Like, her ribcage is nowhere near her butt. Now, Taylor Swift famously testified in court. As the BBC noted, one of the reasons why the case was so significant is because Taylor refused to back down even when the defence questioned the truth of her claims. She said, this is what happened. It happened to me. I know it was him and added, he did not touch my rib. He did not touch my hand. He grabbed my bare ass. When the defence lawyer asked why the photo taken at the time of the alleged incident didn't show the front of her skirt being ruffled, Taylor famously replied, because my ass is located in the back of my body. (laughs) (laughs) She was also later told that her testimony was the most amount of times the word ass had ever been said in Colorado federal court. She also hit back against David's complaint that she had cost him his career and reputation. She said, I am being blamed for the unfortunate events of his life that are a product of his decision, not mine. Slate magazine described her testimony as sharp, gutsy and satisfying and she won the case. Four months later, David mailed Taylor a $1 coin. Mm, A few days after the trial ended on the 18th of August, Taylor wiped her social media clean. So she unfollowed everyone. She deleted every post. She even scrapped her profile picture. And then three days later on August 21, she returned with a video of a snake. Two days after that, she announced her sixth studio album called Reputation. So that Sunday on August 28, Mish, Taylor dropped her music video for Look What You Made Me Do. And that video premiered at the VMAs, which were being hosted by Katy Perry of all people. Now, the song was full of many, perhaps not so subtle references to the events of 2016. (laughs) Firstly, and majorly, her being called a snake online, criticism of her squad of female friends, Tom Hiddleston wearing that very famous shirt that said, I love TS. (laughs) There was also one scene in that music video where she was dressed a lot like Katy Perry. And whether or not she intended that to be the case, people were naturally going to make parallels between Taylor Swift and Katy Perry, given their long-running feud and given she was definitely, definitely trying to emulate a look of Katie's for sure. That's I actually what I disagree. Think. I disagree with you. Watching this back, I don't think she was emulating Katie Perry at all. But I'm totally up. If people want to speculate that that's what she was trying to do, she was trying to do a lot in this video. She was also at one point accused of sitting in a bathtub surrounded by jewellery, making a gun with her hand. 
of potentially pointing fingers at Kim Kardashian's Paris robbery. So there are lots of things that we could pull on here. That was a stretch, but I think for me with the Katy Perry lookalike thing, I'm like, you know exactly who you look like and you know given the long-running view that people are going to draw parallels, you're not doing anything to quell that speculation. That's fair enough. I do remember the day this came out. This was massive. We were working together and I remember we watched this together and I just, my brain was filled with so many things. The song broke the record for most YouTube views in 24 hours. It reached over 43.2 million views in a day. Now, while it was commercially successful, it was a pretty polarizing song. I'm going to put on the record here that it's not my favorite Taylor Swift song. (laughs) The LA Times praised its musicality and said it was a testament to the strength forged through trial by fire. The Guardian, however, gave the song a rating of two stars, saying it was acid gossip that borrows from better songs. Which is all to say that music's subjective, guys. Exactly. On the 10th of November, she finally released her sixth album, Reputation. Unlike her previous albums, this is really interesting. She didn't promote the album through press interviews at all. She decided she was going to let the music speak for itself. Yeah, and Reputation was super successful. It sold over 4.5 million copies in 2017 and became the world's best-selling album by a female artist for that year. I mean, some people might compare this stat, 4.5 million copies in a year, to her previous albums that would have sold more copies at large. We need to remember, though, this is when streaming is becoming the main way that people listen to music. Yes, we can still look at the copies sold, but it's really only relevant when we compare it to the rest of the industry. And compared to the rest of the industry, Taylor was number one. Yeah, she was killing it. It was wildly different to her other albums. As the New York Times pointed out, it was the first time she actually swore on an album, which was clearly a very deliberate decision from her and her team. It was also the first time she sung about drinking alcohol and it was also the most explicitly she'd ever talked about sex. She really wanted here to either be the edgy version of Taylor or the more honest version of Taylor, whichever kind of camp you sit in. And as we know, the album sounded really different. The songs were dark and gritty and were a far cry from country or even the kind of bubbly pop that she'd been known for. Mm, I also remember going to this tour, which, by the way, ended up being the highest grossing North American tour of all time. And I went with my sisters and some family friends thinking, she hasn't said anything in the media. Maybe she'll say something to her fans that's like to new me. and interesting. <laughs> it's interesting because it kind of created this FOMO mentality of like if we get something from Taylor, only the fans at the concert will get it. And I remember being really excited. And let me say, out of all of her tours, this was my favourite one despite Reputation not being my favourite album. That's not to say that Taylor's reputation was fixed and all better though. She did continue to cop criticism for the things she did even when she didn't necessarily have lots of control over them. At the end of 2017, Time magazine actually named her Person of the Year, sort of. So instead of naming a single Person of the Year in 2017, Time actually dedicated the famous edition to a group they called the Silence Breakers. Now, these were women who had stepped forward to speak about sexual violence, Taylor was recognised for her role in that sexual assault case and how public she made that fight. Yeah, and while her testimony in court was celebrated, some did criticise Time magazine for including her as one of its people of the year. On the one hand, she is a survivor of assault who successfully countersued her attacker, but many other people did think that she was being centred in a discussion that she'd never been particularly vocal about whether or not you think that criticism is fair. 
Mish, we need to take a break, but after we come back, we are going to talk about how Taylor Swift really started to pivot publicly. But first, a word from today's sponsor. All right, Zara, it's time for Taylor Swift's big pivot. We are in October 2018, and this is when Taylor made a huge decision. She decided to officially and emphatically break her silence on politics. So in October, Taylor Swift actually took to Instagram to endorse the Democratic Tennessee candidate Phil Bredesen in the November Senate race. Part of her lengthy caption read, In the past, I've been reluctant to publicly endorse my political opinions, but due to several events in my life and in the world in the past two years, I feel very differently about that now. I always have and always will cast my vote based on which candidate will fight and protect for the human rights I believe we all deserve in this country. I believe in the fight for LGBTQ rights and that any form of discrimination based on sexual orientation or gender is wrong. I believe that the systemic racism we see in this country towards people of colour is terrifying, sickening and prevalent. I remember watching her post this in her documentary and we will talk properly about the documentary when the timeline permits (laughs) and we actually get to the documentary. But I remember watching her feel really nervous surrounded by a few of her publicists Mm. and I think her mum was in that scene. Her father as well. It's a really interesting scene to watch. I actually just watched it last week. She's sitting in this room and the majority of people in the room are actually older white men, including her own dad. And she is shaking and crying as she's trying to convince them why she should be able to post this and why it's so important to her. And I think that scene in particular as a Swift fan gives you real insight as to what kind of environment she was becoming a pop star in. Because even in 2018, when the mood and the temperature of the room had changed so much, these men were still strongly telling her, don't do this. You could potentially halve your entire fan base. They still didn't get it. Thankfully, she did it anyway. Yeah. And while Bredesen didn't win, Vote.org reported an unprecedented spike in voter registration after she encouraged people to vote on Instagram. Donald Trump wasn't too happy, though. He said that he liked Taylor's music about 25% less now. (laughs) Let's fast forward to April 2019 because gone were the snakes, the black lipstick, the hooded cloaks. They were all being replaced with the lover era, which was all full of pastel colours, rainbows and butterflies. i got to say, you hated reputation or you didn't like reputation as much. I liked Reputation more than I liked Lover. Yeah, interesting. I liked Lover more than I liked Reputation. So on April 26, she released her upcoming album's first single, It Was Me, with Brendan Urie from Panic at the Disco. And for the first time, her opening single was a tiny bit of a flop, by her standards, Mm. I should say. It peaked at number two on the Billboard charts. I love that I just called it a flop. It was the (laughs) first time in nine years, though, that a lead single from her album didn't instantly hit number one. And there's no doubt her team would notice that. Mm. Taylor released her second single, You Need to Calm Down, on the 14th of June in the middle of Pride Month. Now, this was a single that was supposed to synthesise in potentially a clunky way, two completely different things. The first was it was clearly an anthem to Taylor Swift's haters. The second was it was supposed to be a single about LGBTQIA plus rights and homophobia and the plight of people who might be gay, bisexual, however they identify to be accepted in American society. 
Yes. And people thought that because she name-checked the LGBTIQIA plus rights organisation called GLAD with the lyrics, why are you mad when you could be glad? The music video also featured really popular queer stars like Jonathan Van Ness and Adam Lambert. And at the very end of the video, she called for viewers to sign her petition in support of the Equality Act to prohibit gender and sexuality-based discrimination in the US. It also did see a spike in donations for GLAAD. But Taylor was accused of queer baiting and jumping on a popular issue. And as The Atlantic pointed out, the song appeared to reference Taylor's own life and the hate she had received as a famous person and kind of suggested that this was akin to the discrimination that those in the LGBTQIA plus community have faced. Mm. That was kind of the vibe that a lot of people got from the video, right? Yeah, it was. This is one quote from that Atlantic article. The entire song indeed subsumes queerness into Swift's narratives. Its breathtaking argument is one that famous people are persecuted in a way that's meaningfully comparable to queer people. Like you can understand, I think looking back at the time I was confused because I was thinking, well, she's platforming all these incredible gay activists in her music video. So many of them get the opportunity to have access to Taylor's incredible audience. She did do a great job at boosting registrations to that petition in support of the Equality Act. So yes, there were definitely great things done by Taylor Swift with this single. However, I can also see how some people, particularly belonging to that community, of which I'm not a member, were watching on going, well, why is a straight woman dominating a conversation that she has never really taken part in or championed until it supports her commercially and she can profit off it? Yeah, and that's exactly right. A lot of this criticism, the majority of this criticism was coming from within the community as well. Even more bizarrely, at the very end of the song, Katy Perry appeared. They were dressed up <laughs> together as French fries and a hamburger. They hugged and they put an end to their public <laughs> feud. As The Atlantic pointed out, this was further proof that the song was not about gay rights but was primarily narrative management for superstars. Yeah, which brings us to July 2019 when there was another scandal that rocked Taylor Swift's career. This time it was all about who owned the rights to her masters. Now, if you remember back in episode one, we did signpost this. We said you guys needed to keep it in your mind that when Taylor was 15 years old, she signed with an emerging independent music label called Big Machine Group. It was founded by Scott Borchetta. Taylor was the first artist to sign with the label and her dad bought a 3% stake in the company. Now, at the end of 2018, Taylor's contract with Big Machine finally ended after 13 years and she was officially free to explore new contracts with other labels. She decided instead of re-signing with Big Machine, she was going to move across to a rival at Universal Music Group. Yeah, in a statement, she announced that as part of her contract with Universal, she would own all of the master recordings that she makes from now on, which is, as we know, a huge thing that she values and encourages all young musicians to value. Now, master recordings are the original recordings of a song. They're not the lyrics or the music, but the actual original recording. Whoever owns the master rights, along with whoever owns the copyright of the lyrics and music, controls where the recording is licensed, so where and how it's played. They are the ones who earn money for the recordings when they are played. So, for example, 
if we wanted to put Taylor Swift music through this episode, we would have to go to whoever owns the master recordings and ask for permission, get them licensed to the podcast and probably pay $400 million and turn ourselves <laughs> broke. But that is how labels continually make money off artists long after the music's been recorded and put out into the world. Yeah, and when you stream someone on Spotify, the majority of that stream money goes into the pocket of whoever owns the master recording. Now, Taylor signed away her masters when she signed to Big Machine Records as a teenager. So on the 30th of July 2019, some big news hit the music world. Scott Borchetta was selling Big Machine Records to a powerful and very famous man by the name of Scooter Braun. Now, if that name sounds familiar, but you're not quite across who Scooter Braun is, I would say he's best known for being the man who discovered Justin Bieber and managed Justin Bieber's meteoric rise to fame. I would totally agree with that. He has also worked with stars like Ariana Grande and Kanye West. And suddenly, by owning Big Machine Records, he owned the master recordings of Taylor's first six Albums. Now, later that same day, Taylor wrote a pretty long Tumblr post where she described the sale of Big Machine to Scooter Braun as, and I quote, her worst case scenario. She said that Scooter Braun had inflicted incessant manipulative bullying on her for years. And she also shared a photo of Scooter on a FaceTime call with Kanye West and Justin Bieber that Justin Bieber had actually posted to Instagram in 2016 with the caption, Taylor Swift, what up? Taylor wrote, this is Scooter Braun bullying me on social media when I was at my lowest point. He is about to own all the music I've ever made. She called Scooter Braun out for allowing his client Kanye West to create, and I quote, a revenge porn music video which strips my body naked, referring, of course, to the music video for Famous. Mm, Taylor also wrote that, and I quote, anytime Scott Borchetta has heard the words Scooter Braun escape my lips, it was when I was either crying or trying not to. He knew what he was doing. They both did controlling a woman who didn't want to be associated with them. Now, Taylor also revealed that she had spent years under Big Machine trying to get the rights to her master recordings back. She said that Big Machine Records offered her those masters, but only under an earn back kind of arrangement. So they would give her one set of masters per album back for every new album she wrote under the label. Now, she said that she left Big Machine because she knew that Scott wanted to sell the label, and I quote, thereby selling me and my future. Scott hit back on the same day that she wrote her Tumblr post. He published a post on Big Machine's website called, So It's Time for Some Truth. He said that Taylor Swift could have had control of her masters if she signed a contract and stayed with Big Machine for another several years and included a screenshot of their negotiation document. Now, Taylor Swift doesn't deny that. Mm. She says that to be true. He also said that Taylor wasn't blindsided with the news of the sale. He argued that Taylor's dad, as a shareholder of the company, was across the sale and that he himself had texted Taylor personally about the sale the night before the news broke publicly. The night before isn't a, like a huge lead-up time, is it? Not only did Scott quite randomly confirm speculation that there was an ongoing feud between Justin Bieber and Taylor in this blog post, he wrote, was I aware of some prior issues between Taylor and Justin Bieber? Yes. He also threw in jabs like this. 
Scooter Braun was never anything but positive about Taylor Swift. He called me directly about Manchester to see if Taylor would participate. She declined. He called me directly to see if Taylor wanted to participate in the Parkland March. She declined. Scooter has always been and will continue to be a supporter and honest custodian for Taylor and her music. Let's unpack that last <laughs> bit. I will always be angry that Scott Borchetta brought the Manchester bombing and the Parkland shooting into a statement about Taylor Swift and who owned her music. Yeah, exactly. I think it's completely unrealistic to expect any celebrity to say yes to every charity thing that is ever put in front of them. Yes, I would expect as a consumer that anyone with a public profile would hopefully do a little bit for charity for causes that mean a lot to them. But to expect them to say yes to every single thing is just absurd. And for him to weaponize those examples in this particular moment is basically to say, don't feel any sympathy for Taylor Swift. She doesn't have a heart. Yeah, exactly. Now, artists like Justin Bieber, Demi Lovato and Sia actually came out in defense of Scooter Braun. But others like Halsey, Todrick Hall and Iggy Azalea came out in support of Taylor Swift. Taylor Swift's former best friend, Carly Kloss, very notably didn't weigh in on the matter. She and her husband actually had appeared in a photo hanging out with Scooter and his wife just the weekend before all of this drama. And to add to the awkwardness, Carly is also managed by Scooter. Mm, super messy. Speaking of which, we need to kind of talk about what the hell happened between Taylor Swift and Carly Kloss's infamous friendship. The two of them were very publicly best friends. Like they definitely wanted us to know about that. They repeatedly shared photos on big road trips together. They told the press, of course, that there was a spare room for Carly Kloss at Taylor Swift's New York apartment. They played the best best friends game in a 2015 video with Vogue. Just a few weeks after Kim Kardashian, though, leaked that video about Taylor in 2016, Carly didn't publicly defend her best friend. If anything, in an interview with the Sunday Times style, she kind of leaned towards Kim Kardashian's side. Yeah, so she was asked whether she thought Kim Kardashian was a good person, which is a funny <laughs> question from an interviewer. Carly replied, huh, you know, I think she's been a lovely person to me in the past. Look, I don't really know her that well. Carly took to Twitter after this because there was naturally a lot of conjecture about what that even meant. And she said, I will not allow the media to misconstrue my words. Taylor has always had my back and I will always have hers. Mm. I do kind of feel for Carly with that interview because it's like, well, what are you meant to say? You're asked if someone's a nice person and what are you meant to do? Say no, she's a bitch? Yeah, it's a tricky it's, one it's because like, lose, lose. it's also not your drama. You haven't done exactly. anything to find yourself and so, in this like turmoil and yet you're about to be plunged into it as soon as you say even remotely the wrong thing. But then on the other hand, I understand it might have been a slap in the face to Taylor to go, well, I've always had your back in the industry. You give this interview and you don't really say yes. like, I feel sorry for Taylor. I don't like the way she acted. Like there are ways to answer this question without coming for someone's personality, you could say, I don't like the way Kim Kardashian held herself in those moments. I think it's lose-lose. I don't know what like work could have mm. been on the line for Carly Kloss. And again, it wasn't her drama to insert herself in. You do love your Carly Kloss. No, I'm just kind of like, <laughs> what would anyone else do? Like you have no idea what's going on behind the scenes. 
I think it's lose-lose for anyone who's asked that. It's easy to kind of, with years of hindsight, look back and go, maybe she could have worded it this way. If you're put on the spot and you have five seconds to come up with the perfect answer, how many of us are going to come up with anything even remotely close to perfect? Exactly. But after 2017, they weren't really seen together again. That's Carly and Taylor. Little clues started to emerge that they weren't friends anymore. I mean, Carly's name didn't appear on a T-shirt that Taylor Swift wore in the Look What You Made Me Do music video with all her friends names on it. Now, to add to that, in January 2018, which was actually before Taylor Swift had publicly made up with Katy Perry, so sorry for a little bit of funkiness in the timeline, (laughs) but this was before they publicly made up. Carly posted a video of herself with a basketball and captioned it, swish, swish, which people thought was a reference to Katy Perry's diss track about Taylor Swift. She had to change the caption. Poor Katy Perry did not get enough hype around Swish Swish compared to the hype that was around Bad Blood. Now, Carly Kloss was also snapped going out to dinner with Katy Perry at the start of 2018, which convinced fans that Taylor and Carly were no longer friends. Of course, we know that everything was smoothed over very soon after between Katy and Taylor. But for Carly to be seen with Katy and not being seen with Taylor for months really did contribute to the speculation that all was not well. Even Jennifer Lawrence, Hollywood actress Jennifer Lawrence, contributed to the like feverish speculation around whether or not Taylor and Carly were friends anymore. In an interview with the New York Times, she said she was so addicted to researching the friendship that trying to figure out what happened was, and I quote, keeping her up at night. It was a pretty confusing time because while fans were like, are Carly and Taylor friends anymore? They were like, yeah, yeah, we are. Because in March, the New York Times profiled Carly and said that Taylor was one of her closest friends. In August, Carly posted a photo posing with Taylor backstage at her Reputation concert. And Carly told Vogue that, don't worry, Taylor and I are still really good friends. But that was kind of it, right? Mm. It didn't look like Taylor was at either of Carly's two weddings in 2018 and 2019. And Perez Hilton, of all people, alleged that Carly had leaked personal information about Taylor Swift to Scooter Braun. BuzzFeed also pointed out that two of Taylor's oldest friends, Ashley and Claire, like Perez Hilton's tweets containing these claims. What do you think about your girl Carly Kloss now? I don't know, because they're both my gals, so I don't know. But that sounds, dare I say, there's something there. If two of your oldest friends are liking those posts, that is enough for me to say, green tick, that story has to be legit. If it wasn't legit... Why are those friends liking that post? Because maybe they were told to give it some air time. Oh, my God. Many people do think that Taylor's recent song, It's Time to Go, references the end of her relationship with Carly Kloss, in particular the lyrics, when the words of a sister come back in whispers that prove that she was not, in fact, what she seemed. Not a twin from your dreams. She's a crook who was caught. Who knows who it was about? <laughs> but we know, no, but we know that Taylor Swift builds hype about the guessing game Mm -hmm. around these songs. So she would have known absolutely that people would have thought that this was about Carly Kloss. Now, let's go back to Taylor Swift for a second and let's go back to her albums because on August 23, 2019, she released her seventh album, of course, as we know, and as we said, it's called Lover. And again, the album was, of course, a commercial success. It was the best-selling studio album of the year. The day that Lover was released, Taylor went on Good Morning America and gave them quite the juicy exclusive. On the show, she announced that after November 2020, she would start re-recording 
selling all of her existing albums that were owned by Big Machine Records. She said if she couldn't own her original masters, she would record new ones as soon as she was contractually allowed to. She told GMA, I just think that artists deserve to own their work. I just feel very passionately about that. Now, a quick interesting aside that we definitely can't look past here. Taylor has said that she wants her master recordings to be as close to the original as possible, but it's prompted many people to wonder whether she will re-record better than Revenge from Speak Now. I mean, to recap, as we mentioned in episode one, Taylor released a song on Speak Now called Better Than Revenge, and the song was rumoured to be directed at actress Camilla Bell herself. After Taylor and Joe Jonas broke up, this really feels like a throwback now we're in episode (laughs) three, he started dating Camilla and in the song, Taylor sang about how another famous woman quote-unquote took her boyfriend. The lyric was, she's not a saint and she's not what you think, she's an actress, but she's better known for the things she does on the mattress. Yeah, now publications, particularly feminist publications and commentators, began taking aim at this song and its anti-feminist message that a woman could steal a man from another. When Taylor was asked about this song by The Guardian, she replied, I was 18 when I wrote that. That's the age you are when you think someone can actually take your boyfriend. Then you grow up and realise no one can take someone from you if they don't want to leave. Now, we know that Camilla has never gotten over this. She said it really did impact her career. She was clearly upset about it still in 2016 when she backed up Katy Perry on Twitter when Katy took aim at Taylor Swift. It will be very interesting to see what Taylor does about Better Than Revenge because lots of fans will want the song. It's a catchy song. I admit it's like really hard to think that we might not get it back. Because You'll get the song? I, I think it'll be revised. It will be revised. The lyrics will be changed and she'll make it about herself, not about Camilla Bell for sure. Mm. Now, one of the best parts about this time in her career was Taylor's emotional vulnerability in interviews. As you remember, she did no interviews during Reputation. So there was a lot of stuff and a lot of time that had passed before Taylor Swift had spoken to the media. In August 2019, in an interview with The Guardian, it felt like she really opened herself up more than I can ever remember in a press interview. Mm. She talked a lot about that period of time where she disappeared from the public eye and she said, every domino fell. It became really terrifying for anyone to even know where I was and I felt completely incapable of doing or saying anything publicly at all, even about my music. I always said I wouldn't talk about what was happening personally because that was a personal time. I just need some things that are mine, just some things. Yeah, she also talked about how while she was working on Reputation, she was also writing, and I quote, a think piece a day that I knew I would never publish. The stuff I would say and the different facets of the situation that nobody knew. When The Guardian asked if she would ever release them, she said no, and here's why. Because when people are in a hate frenzy and they find something to mutually hate together, it bonds them. And anything you say is an echo chamber of mockery. You can either stand there and let the wave crash into you, or you can try as hard as you can to fight something that's more powerful and bigger than you. Or you can dive under the water, hold your breath, wait for it to pass, and while you're down there, try to learn something. 
Why was I in that part of the ocean? There were clearly things that said, riptide, undertow, don't swim. There were no lifeguards. Why was I there? Why was I trusting the people I trusted? Why was I letting people into my life the way I was letting them in? What was I doing that caused this? I think of all quotes from Taylor Swift, that is my favourite. It's definitely my favourite interview that she's done. And we will put a link in our show notes if you want to go back and read that after this episode because it's like she's absolutely right. You do need to dive under that wave and kind of hold your breath for it to pass over you. But with her as well, it's like, yes, what are the decisions that I made that Mm. led me here? Because there's no way any Taylor Swift fan can sit here and say she didn't make decisions that also led her to this path too. According to these quotes, Taylor Swift also really didn't see her downfall coming at all. She said, I didn't realise it was a classic overthrow of someone in power where you didn't realise the whispers behind your back, you didn't realise the chain reaction of events that was going to make everything fall apart at the exact perfect time for it to fall apart. Yeah, I agree with you. I think this is her best interview to date and I think partially I love it because she was so self-aware, which is something we hadn't always seen from Taylor in the past. She spoke to The Guardian about her response to Nicki Minaj's tweets that we covered in episode two. And she said that she had learned a lot, most notably about white privilege. She said, my privilege allowed me to not have to learn about white privilege. I didn't know about it as a kid and that is privilege itself, you know, and that's something that I'm still trying to educate myself on every day. How can I see where people are coming from and understand the pain that comes with the history of our world? Another notable interview that Taylor Swift did during this period was with Rolling Stone in September 2019, where she said, I felt like I was walking along the sidewalk knowing eventually the pavement was going to crumble and I was going to fall through. She also seemed to say that some of the downfall or her reputation's downfall was inevitable because people just won't love you forever. Mm. She said, you can't keep winning and have people like it. People love you so much. They raise you up the flagpole and you're waving at the top of the flagpole for a while and then they're like, wait, this new flag is what we actually love. They decide something you're doing is incorrect, that you're not standing for what you should stand for. You're a bad example. Mm. Now, another one of her lessons that Taylor clearly put into her arsenal from that horrid 2016 was about romantic relationships. For the first time in her life, she was having a romantic relationship in private. At the time that she gave those quotes to Rolling Stone and The Guardian, she had been with her boyfriend, Joe Alwyn, the actor, for quite some time, but had chosen not to speak about him, which was definitely a deviation away from the Taylor Swift we once knew. Yeah, she said, I've learned that if I do, people think it's up for discussion and our relationship isn't up for discussion. That's where the boundary is and that's where my life has become manageable and I really want to keep it feeling manageable. As an outsider, it feels like the smartest decision she could make because it really does feel like people don't know enough about her and Joe to speak about her and Joe. It's also by far her longest relationship. They've been together for five years now. That is like five times the length of any relationship that came before it. So it's clearly been an ingredient for success. Also around this time, in 2020 now, when Taylor released her Netflix documentary called Miss Americana, We saw sides to Taylor Swift that we had never seen any glimpse of before she kind of had to rebuild her entire reputation. Now, in Miss Americana, 
we learned that Taylor Swift had been struggling with disordered eating for a big chunk of her professional career. Yeah, she said in this documentary, it's not good for me to see pictures of myself every day because I have a tendency to get triggered by something. She also admitted that there had been times where she'd seen a picture of herself where, and I quote, I feel like I looked like my tummy was too big or someone said that I looked pregnant and that'll just trigger me to just starve a little bit, just stop eating. Yeah. She also went on to say, I thought I was just supposed to feel like I was going to pass out at the end of the show or in the middle of it. Here's another snippet from that documentary with Taylor. I would have defended it to anyone who said I'm concerned about you. I was like, what are you talking about? Of course I eat. It's perfectly normal. I just exercise a lot. And I did exercise a lot, but I wasn't eating. You don't ever say to yourself, like, I've got an eating disorder, but you know you're, like, making a list of everything you put in your mouth that day, and you know that's probably not right. But then again, there's so many diet blogs that tell you that that, that that's what you should do. Really, really interesting because I remember seeing how slim Taylor was growing up and thinking, oh, well, that's just the way her body is. But I think when you look at the footage of her in that documentary and the way her body should be when she's eating healthily and the way she was presenting to the world for so many years, you realise how significant this was for her. Hugely significant. She later told Variety how one tabloid magazine headline actually had a huge effect on her. She said... I remember how when I was 18, that was the first time I was on the cover of a magazine and the headline was like, pregnant at 18 and it was because I had worn something that made my lower stomach look not flat. So I just registered that as a punishment and then I'd walk into a photo shoot and be in the dressing room and someone who worked at a magazine would say, oh wow, this is so amazing that you can fit into the sample sizes. Usually we have to make alterations to the dresses but we can take them right off the runway and put them on you. And I looked at that as a pat on the head. You register that enough time and you just start to accommodate everything towards praise and punishment, including your own body. I wonder what you think about this, but for me, this felt like the most candid tailor we had met yet. And I think a lot of women were finding her endearing and interesting and compelling again because we felt like we weren't getting the perfect goody two-shoes show. We were getting Taylor warts and all. It's really interesting because I think for Taylor Swift, and she said it on the record in the past, the more you give, the more people will poke and pry. But I think the truth of it is when you share parts of yourself that are hard to share and you give people context on why you make decisions and why you are how you are, I think generally your most staunch fans will have a lot of compassion for that and a lot of understanding about that. And I really do think with this documentary, even though there's commentary about how meticulous it was edited and how well it portrayed Taylor, it really did mark the start for me, at least in my opinion, of her re-rise because you start to understand a lot of the happenings behind the scene. I don't even care if they were accurate or not. I was like, this seems believable to me and therefore I'm going to take it as the truth. Yeah, I also think vulnerability bred empathy and that was so important for her. Now, this all brings us to the new, refined, modern and mature Taylor Swift, the one that focuses on her work and her music and not as much on the scandals that have historically surrounded those things. In 2020, when the world was stuck in lockdown, Taylor kind of became our musical hero. She shocked the world by releasing not one, but two surprise albums, Folklore and Evermore. There was no lead up, no breadcrumbing, no PR. There was just Taylor Swift's storytelling, her lyrics, her beautiful voice, 
and a whole lot of adoration for an artist that has defined music for the last decade. Totally. The PR was entirely centred on the quality of the music, not the star power behind it. Folklore in particular was widely praised. Rolling Stone gave it a four and a half out of five stars and said it was, and I quote, the deepest collection of songs she's ever come up with. One Guardian reviewer gave it five stars and said that the album was proof that Taylor's music can thrive without the celebrity drama. Mm. Now, while Reputation and Lover had both been nominated for Best Pop Vocal Album at the Grammys, they had missed out on awards like Album of the Year. That was an award that she'd won with 1989 and Fearless in the past. Folklore felt very much like her musical redemption. Not only was it nominated for Album of the Year, it won that award. And Evermore is nominated for Album of the Year at this year's Grammys. Yeah, 2021 has also seen the release of two of Taylor's master re-recordings, Fearless and Red both came out as Taylor's versions. Going back to something we discussed in episode one, We really have seen in 2021 just how clever a businesswoman Taylor Swift really is and how well she understands and can leverage her fandom. I mean, in addition to her re-recordings, she also released songs that were written at the same time as these albums that were held in an archive that she has re-released and have just shot to the top of the charts. I mean, her 10-minute version of All Too Well became the number one streamed song globally on Spotify's charts. She also did a collaboration with Phoebe Bridges and released a new single called I Bet You Think About Me. As The Atlantic wrote, Taylor continues to push herself to new places. She doubles down on the things that make her beloved. I think that's so bang on. I think she's kind of got that perfect line between a little bit of celebrity juice with like the Jake Gyllenhaal stuff around all too well, but nothing that goes particularly overboard and nothing that she particularly sort of takes part in commentary wise. Mm. But now she's in this space where she really can let the music speak for itself and the way that she builds hype and the way that she builds publicity is through little clues Mm. with her fans and with little games with her fans and she doesn't need to do a big hoo-ha show in other (laughs) other elements of her celebrity life in order to get those headlines. What have you learned about Taylor Swift doing this series? I have learned that 2016 was far more of a car crash than I remember Mm. and that she will likely never find herself in a position like that again because the decisions that her team made around publicity are not going to ground were ones that really cost her. And I think if anything comes out again and she finds herself in the centre of a storm again, I think she'll be able to get out of it much faster than she ever did before. What about Mm. you? I have learnt that I think Taylor Swift was pretty immature for her age. She makes this comment in Miss Americana that you stop growing up at the age that you become famous. And that was true for her. And she used 2016 and 2017 to catch up because she was so immature. I think she was really young for her age. I think that is why she found herself in a lot of the scandals that she did. I think she was rewarded for so long by so many people for playing the part of the good girl. And I'm glad that she kind of shook those shackles and kind of freed herself from the good girl persona because I think the Taylor Swift we see in 2022 is a far more candid, honest, lovable Taylor Swift because she has allowed herself to be vulnerable. I think it's a fascinating story and a fascinating life and to think she's only in her 30s is pretty terrifying. I would love like a long movie 
Or maybe just a long TV show about her life. I love that we've got Miss Americana. We're like, we need another one. But I would love (laughs) it all to be acted out in stages. But imagine a TV show that went through all the drama. I don't know who would play her. (laughs) I want it. Anyway, I'll put it to the universe. (laughs) Guys, that is all we've got time for. This has been a big bumper three-part series for summer and I couldn't have loved doing it more. Thank you so much as always to our researcher Justine Landers-Hanley for doing the bulk of the research, the bloody pages after pages after (laughs) pages of research for this. We are very appreciative. Yeah, guys, thank you so much for listening. Of course, come over to our Instagram at Shameless Podcast to see our throwback galleries. Go to our TikTok at shameless underscore podcast to watch snippets that we do in different episode recordings or to see different TikToks we make about pop culture. And then just have a good day. Be safe. Yeah, thanks so much, guys. Speak soon. Bye. Shameless Media. This podcast was recorded on Wurundjeri land. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land. Hello guys, Mish here. I am the co-founder of Shameless Media. Thank you so much for giving us your ears and your mind and your time. We're so grateful. If you enjoy the stuff that we produce, may I recommend our brand new podcast, Style-ish. Style-ish, if you want to say it quickly. Style-ish, if you want to take the long way through It is our podcast for all things fashion, brand, business, and beauty. If that is in your wheelhouse, if you care about style content, you will love this show. It is, of course, more than just a show as well. It is a newsletter. It is an Instagram feed. It is a TikTok account. There is so much good stuff going out on Stylish every single day starting now. So in your favorite app, search for Style-ish. Give it a listen. Give it a follow. We are an independent media company and we would be so, so grateful for all your support. That's all for me, guys. Check out Stylish and have a good one.